Steve and Kevin review Ikoria for Vintage on episode 99 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 99 of So Many Insane Plays, our Ikoria Lair of Behemoths vintage set review. This one's a doozy, so hang on for the ride. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Great to be here. If you have any questions or comments or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. We weren't expecting it, Steve, but we got a fun announcement for this show, and that is changes to the Magic Online vintage tournament structure. What can you tell us? Well, there are two major changes. They're both exciting. I don't know how exciting the second one is, but let me start with the first. (laughs) So the first is that effective, uh, I believe, April the 19th or the 18th, there will be two vintage challenges every weekend, one on Saturday and one on Sunday. Cool. And in fact, that's going to be true for each of the challenges. There'll be a Saturday and a Sunday. Which, for other formats, you mean? For other formats, which makes me kind of really proud because Rich Shea and I wrote a letter many years ago asking them to, t- to create a monthly event, which was the Power 9 Challenge. Then the Power 9 Challenge became the Vintage Challenge, and then they created all these other challenges for other formats. So I feel like, you know, a, a kind of a godfather of, of these challenges. But, he, <laughs> but here's, here's the funny twist on this, Kevin. So the mm-hmm. Vintage Challenge on Saturday will be 10 a.m. Pacific, which is, uh, I believe, uh, let's see, 1 p.m. Eastern. Is that right? Yep. So that's, you know, as normal. Here's the twist, though. <laughs> the Sunday Vintage Challenge starts now at 12 a.m. at midnight. Pacific. Midnight on Sunday. So we're appealing to Europe here. <laughs> yeah, right. It's three, three. Uh, that would be three, 3 in the morning Eastern. Yeah. yeah. So if if you're really a diehard and you want to double double down every weekend, you could do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a bit easier for people in Hawaii or or even in the you know I guess out here. I could, yeah. If I wanted to stay up really late, I could start at midnight and and keep grinding until I'm I'm out or or make top eight. But you're probably right. looking at like going to bed at I don't know. Let's see. Typically, these things start for me. At ten, and the the finals is around three to four, maybe four p.m. Yeah. So they're typically six Five hours. Or six for, hour events. Yeah. That's including though. That's including like seven rounds plus top eight. So so you know. Yeah, it's the, not bad, but no. it's still a, a serious time commitment to start at midnight. <laughs> yes, it, and that's the only one that starts that early. Then the the Sunday Modern Challenge is at four. Then Pioneers at six. Then eight, Legacies at eight. Poppers at ten. Anyway, I realize there's a lot already on. Uh, on Sunday, they were split Saturday and Sunday anyway, but it's kind of right. odd that the Vintage Challenge starts at midnight. Um, the other news is that uh, Vintage will, in fact, be what's called a Season 2 Showcase format. So you might recall, our listeners might recall, that in 2019, there were the Vintage Qualifiers, which qualified you for the Vintage Championship, which if you won, mm-hmm. qualified you for the Pro Tour, whatever the equivalent was. Well, this Showcase Challenge, the Season 1, did not have vintage as a format, which means I had zero interest in playing any of the preliminary events. Yeah. That will now change because there will be three showcase tournaments in, I don't know, season two 
which will run. We don't. I don't have the dates for season two precisely when season two uh, showcase events will be, but they will be sometime between in May, June, possibly July. Maybe they'll start in April. I'm not sure. But anyway, it'll be you know roughly Q2, maybe a little beyond. Yeah. beyond. And and the showcase events should be, I think, pretty high value tournaments for vintage players. So it's nice that we'll have those, and those will replace. I understand one of the vintage challenges uh, of the weekend. I presume it will be the Saturday one, which starts at 10 a.m. as opposed to the midnight one Pacific time. But what this all means at the end of the day is more events on. Um, here's the actual announcement: it says vintage is replacing Popper as a so- showcase challenge for a se- format for season two. This means that on the showcase challenge weekends, the vintage, the Saturday vintage challenge will become the so- showcase challenge, requiring 40 QPs, qualification points, to join and qualify the players who reach the top eight for the vintage champion showcase qualifier at the end of the season. So there you go. They are going to basically um, mimic in some ways what happened last year, which I am all for. Yeah, it was great. Drove a lot of excitement, I think, for the format, too. So, and also that we've got so many players playing, you know, on, on the vintage challenges now. This past weekend was actually 103 players. So, yeah. uh, it's impressive that we've been able to keep that increased uh, attendance. Obviously, this Sunday event is going to draw a significantly fewer amount, right? Because right. I, I don't have the details in front of me, but I, I happen to know that a lot of the, a lot of the regulars in the top eights of the vintage challenges are North American players, and just many of them will be disinterested in the time slot on Sunday. But we'll pick up players from Europe and Asia That's right. in a way that we, we don't have today. So we'll and see it, what the off, offsetting effect is like. It's going to be very attractive for European players because then, they, you know, then they'll have the field to themselves and the payout's just as good, but presumably a smaller field. So it'll be yeah. interesting to see what that means. You know, what does it mean for the player base? Will it fracture it? Will it mean it will expand it? Will it do a bit of both? Um, also, I don't know, will they report the top, the top 32 decks from both? events or will they just continue to report saturday events that's tbd um you know i I know that they've gone back they only report league five o's that occur on saturday uh right you know which they used to do on a daily basis so we'll find out you know but hopefully there'll be more data more evidence more opportunities for people to experiment and be creative and so on and so forth and i'm all for it so as we normally do with our set reviews let's start with our Report card for Theros Beyond Death. So, Steve, we did discuss a handful of cards for Theros. Not as many as some recent sets, of course. Theros had a couple of really heavy hitters for Vintage, but not the kind of quantity that we've enjoyed lately. And I think we're going to be reviewing many more cards for Ikoria, for example. So, And and by the way, as a point of reference, mm-hmm. which was the set that, that had the most Vintage playables in 2019 from our Year in Review episode? Recall? I thought that was Modern Horizons. With War of the Spark being the yeah. runner-up? yeah. Both were just filled to the brim with that's right dirty cards. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so there are many cards that we frequently discuss primarily for their characteristics, but not necessarily for their play expectation. And that's no different this time for the likes of Ashiach, Nightmare Muse, Ox of Agonis, Kuneros, Hound of Athreos, Eidolon of Obstruction, 
Whirlwind Denial, Nadir Kraken, and Kroxa Titan of Death's Hunger, we predicted zero and the result was zero. But there were a few other notable cards in this set. Let's start out with one of the biggest hitters, Underworld Breach. Steve, you predicted 38. I predicted 35. The actual was only 11. 11 top eight appearances for Underworld Breach. Double digit appearance Mm -hmm. is is clearly, clearly vintage playable. (laughs) Absolutely. uh, Did you get a chance to noodle around with this card very much? I did just a little bit, but since I haven't been playing online and our local tournaments haven't been firing, I haven't gotten a lot of trial by fire, really. But I did put it into some Xerox-style shells, and as well as some Paradoxical Outcome shells, and was pretty impressed by the way it manifests. Did did you feel like the limitations of the card were more pronounced than you expected, or were about in line where you expected? They felt in line with where I expected. You do have to plan a certain way when you're when you have one and you're preparing the turn for it. But the fact that it dodged Pyroblast was just enormous for me in testing, especially in matchups where Pyroblast is a major bugaboo-like paradoxical outcome. (laughs) We talked a lot about Pyroblast in our last episode. (laughs) That's right. Um, I had a chance to test quite a bit. I probably blew several hundred points, uh, play points, and ratings points (laughs) (laughs) on on Magic Online, testing different variations of... uh, of of underworld breach decks i tried it in kind of aggressive combo all the way to slower control and and pretty much everything in between i was most excited about putting it into a grixis type shell that was really focused on trying to find ancestral recall and and firing off ancestral as as many times as possible Mm -hmm. um and i have to say that i was just ultimately disappointed with the results mainly because it's it's it it would have been so powerful ten fifteen years ago, but I think the issue is just that the the rest of the format is so fast. Even if you can take a turn or two to find ancestral, fire it off, and the men re- recurring it, it's often just too slow. And it's not only too slow, but it was often too fragile. So you you know, and you really didn't have enough power around it to get it going. I think what was most Interesting is I think it's probably best as a one-off in the Xerox decks. I've been playing a lot against Xerox decks where they will, I mean, it's absurd what they can do. You know, the late game singleton of this. It's just kind yeah. of like, I mean, you're basically just dead <laughs> if, if they get this. They can play, you know, if you've got a, a graveyard of 20 cards, you can just do everything, right? Lotus a couple times, Ancestral a couple of times, Time Walk a couple times. I think the, the, I really did find though, that I think that the additional cost was maybe about 20 to 30% more intensive than I had originally presumed during the card evaluation. Okay. That is to say that the speed and celerity with which you can get additional cards in the graveyard to pay to continue to fuel Black Lotus or Lions that I'm an ancestral, it, I often find myself at the borderline of that over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So I would have, for example, like maybe five cards in my graveyard when I resolved it and I was trying to get just one more card in my graveyard so I could play like Lotus and Ancestral, right? Um, and it just became, it became a little bit of a bottleneck. It was, and I tried different configurations to try and speed that up. So I played with, you know, more fetch lands or, um, more cycling cards. You know, just nothing. I just couldn't, I put max out on cantrips, just couldn't quite get enough cycling. I, I kind of have the feeling that like if Gataxian probe is ever unrestricted, then it might tip it back. You know, that, that it might tip back in the direction where it might be, might tip back in the other side of that line. Mm-hmm. But um, over and over again, it felt like I was just hitting an invisible wall 
where I wasn't quite able to extract enough, quite enough value. I think it's a, I think it's a definitely a playable card. I think it's, uh, quite powerful. But I also think, and this is one of the questions that, that I raised during the review. I said, how good is Yogmas will right now? I think the Yogmas will is also just kind of like an all time, if not all time near all time nadir. <laughs> it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's kind of at the bottom of its overall power for a lot of reasons. I mean, there's a lot more anti Yogmas will technology in the format from Graft Digger's Cage to what's the, what's the new anti graveyard card that, that was from the set? Yeah. Soul Guide Lantern. Soul Guide Lantern. Just everything. A little, little, you know, Nick's cuts, <laughs> um, to, to your graveyard can ultimately make a difference. Yeah. Understood. Nick's cuts. Yeah. Well, and your observation about the way the card is showing the most success dovetails with the results I saw. The most common treatment was as a one of in a Jeskai model. I, the other appearances also were an oath. When we did our set review, we already had seen the first challenge results where Sun Titan was used to return this from the grave in oath. And there were a couple other oath appearances, not only with Sun Titan, but with a more traditional Gristlebrand, Niv-Mizzet kind of package. So that's basically the appearances that we are seeing these days. Obviously, we'll and keep an eye. It didn't show up anywhere else in your search. There was one other rogue deck, but that was it. Got it. But nothing super aggressive in terms of combo. Correct. Nothing that had four yeah. of these in it that was really trying to push the card or anything like that. Yeah, I was. I was originally started like, look, I want to play draw sevens. I want to do things that can fill my bin. And there were certainly times where it was incredibly powerful, mm-hmm. but it just wasn't consistent, and that was the key. Powerful, yes. Consistent, no. Consistency is important in vintage these days. All right, let's move on to another exciting card that didn't have quite the numbers. Thassa's Oracle. Steve, you predicted one. I predicted none. The actual was three. Three Thassa's Oracle top eights during our testing period, which, if you remind our audience, it's basically the quarter following the set's release, so basically between release and now. And those appearances. Sounds low. I thought yeah, there were more doomsdays in top eights, but there maybe was only, not. yeah, there was only one top eight for Athos's Oracle Doomsday. And ironically, that was the only doomsday appearance. The other two appearances I, were in mentor rogue decks. I thought, I'm pretty sure Eco Baronin top eighted he, this past weekend. He was the one. With, yeah. Okay. Yep. All right. Next up, we have Dryad of the Elysian Grove. Steve, you predicted zero. I predicted one. The actual was zero. So that goes down as a win from you. I, I have no idea what that card is. I, don't, I have no memory of it. <laughs> That's the uh, prismatic omen creature where all your lands are all the types and you can play an extra land. We talked about ah. it as enabling the three and four color Mystic Sanctuary type decks. And I thought that we would see uh, an appearance of that, but it did not manifest in our top eight criteria. Okay. And last but not least, we have Soul Guide Lantern. Steve, you predicted 25. I predicted 15. Oh, wow. I was all in on that card. You kind of were. The actual was five. Only five. And I think that those results are uh, steering a little more toward recency, too. I think the card's picking up a little bit in popularity as people try it out and as the graveyard-based decks in the format jostle for jockey for position. So I do think we're going to see a little bit more Soul Guide Lantern in the long term. But for now, there was definitely uh, (laughs) an impetus or uh, a low adoption rate. That to me is is more surprising, I think, than the than the undercount of underworld breach. I thought we we were stretching for underworld breach because we were hot on it, mm-hmm. but Soul God Lander just seems like it just fit into so many things immediately with so much so much upside. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm surprised you said only five. That's right. That's that's really shocking to me. I've seen it in main decks. I've seen it in sideboards. 
only five top eight appearances is shockingly low <laughs> in my estimation. Seriously. I mean, I would have... I'm with I, you. It, it, having played in a lot of leagues and a couple of challenges the last couple of months, I would have guessed... I would have guessed between 15 and 20, honestly. And all of the appearances I that made top eight were inside boards. Three of them in Oath, yes. one in Mud, and one in Mentor. So the, yeah. the applications are pretty That's, diverse at this point, which is a red flag yes. in my opinion, right? The fact that yes. those three significantly different archetypes... Can each use it. Yeah. And the fact... It's not just that those archetypes are different. It's that each of those archetypes has a pretty significantly different plan against graveyard-based decks, right? Right. And so the fact that it actually is successful and fits in them all is a mark in its favor, big time. Especially in Mud. I mean, I guess it's possible that Mud is just trying to get a lot of value with Cage, and maybe they don't want to have be all in one casting cost slot. But, jeez, uh, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's so good. <laughs> I mean, a turn one on the draw, you hit the dredger, and then, you know, at your convenience, at your leisure, you can blow up the graveyard. It's just, it's hard for me to fathom that, honestly. Well, we'll see. I'm, I tend yeah. to be with you. I think that, that, obviously, my prediction was still much higher than five. I predicted 15, and I, I stand by it. I think it's a better card than five appearances. That sounds like just slow adoption to me. Yeah. But, Especially with graveyard hate cards, right? There's a lot of people have their go-to, what they trust when it comes to fighting dredge, for example. And yeah. I'm I'm no different. I it'd but, be hard for it's hard to unseat me in terms of what I trust <laughs> to fight dread. Well, fair that's fair enough. I do think though that stubbornness is not always optimal in <laughs> in, in fighting dredge. <laughs> well right. Can't can't argue with that. But the simple truth is you and I both know that slow adoption is a real thing, especially for cards like this that appear to be incremental versions of existing cards. We saw it with we, we saw it with many other things in the past. I don't need to belabor the point. All right, let, let's move on. <laughs> yeah. So that's it for our Theros Beyond Death review. We only predicted play for four cards, and three of them had play. So it was 11 appearances of Underworld Breach, three Thassa's Oracle, and five Soul Guide Lantern. That was it for Theros Beyond and, Death. And our personal scorecards were split 2-2? They were, yeah. I was closer only by a little bit on Underworld Breach. And I was closer by a lot more on Soul Guide Lantern. <laughs> but you called the Theros, the Thassa's Oracle and the Dryad. Well, I'm looking forward to this this new set. Yeah, let's we've, dive in. we've got some fun stuff to talk about. So let's see what we can say about Ikoria. Steve, we'd like to start each set review with a review of the mechanics of a given set, especially for those that have brand new exciting ones. And Ikoria is, whew, it is no exception. We can talk about those things that are old and returning, like cycling, for example. Cycling's a theme in this set. And there's really nothing new about cycling in this set. They've been a little more aggressive and flexible with cycling costs. So there are cards that cycle for one generic mana, for example. And they've also continued with cycling effects. They have things that trigger off the cycling, but none of that's new. And also, cycling is not especially a, a vintage-relevant ability. It's not bad. It's just not especially So I haven't read every card. I just want to be clear. Mm -hmm. You're saying, so we have cycling, but we have cycling that has spell effects, that, so it's triggered abilities? That's right. Like 
I can remember I can remember some abil- cycling abilities like um isn't there like a stifle effect that when you cycle you get to stifle something? Yeah, that's a creature well, that's cer- a creature cer- from back in Amonkhet. Yeah, and then there's uh of course there's like eternal dragon type cards. Yep. Yep, yep. When you cycle you can like find the planes. Yep. Um and then there's of course decree of justice is probably the most famous yeah. vintage cycling spell. Yeah. So stuff like that. Yes, decree of justice is actually a perfect comparison because there are cards in Ikoria like Shark Typhoon, which is a comical allusion to Sharknado, but it has cycling of X1B, and it says when you cycle Shark Tornado, create an XX blue shark creature token with flying. So it's like exactly like uh, Decree of Justice, in fact, in that the cycling creates a creature. In this case, it's just X is the size. Of it. And there are other things like that. There's a connection between cycling, too, and one of the other new uh, mechanics of the set, which is ability counters. So. We now have counters that represents abilities on creatures, and they're standard evergreen creature abilities like flying, trample, vigilance, that kind of thing. So now effects can put those ability counters onto creatures and thereby granting them that ability. And there's actually a cycle of cards, no pun intended, that when you cycle them, you put one of those counters on a creature you control. Like Splendor Mare, when you cycle Splendor Mare, put a lifelink counter on target creature you control. So there's all kinds of ways now to cycle cards and effectively, for free, put abilities onto your creatures. But that's just the tip of the iceberg for Ikoria. We've got two noteworthy new mechanics, both of which are fairly complex and interesting. One not for vintage, the other one very much so. The first is Mutate. Mutate is a creature ability, kind of like an alternate casting cost, and it's very similar in function to Bestow. If you remember Bestow, it was a way you could... No, I don't. <laughs> well, it's it's <laughs> all right. If you me. don't, that's fine. Bestow was a way that you could play a creature as an enchantment that was like an aura. It enchanted another creature and gave it abilities similar to its its, its uh, own abilities. And then when it fell off, it became a creature again. Well, Mutate is a little bit like that because it's an alternate cost for a creature. And when you play it, it combines with another... has to be non-human. Another non-human creature that you own. It does say own, which is very interesting. So in other words, you combine these two things and they have all the abilities of both creatures, but they are a copy of whichever one you put on top. So a simple one, for example, is <laughs> Volpakeet. These names are hilarious. Volpakeet is a 3W bird fox. It's a 2-3 with flying. It says whenever this creature mutates, put a plus one, plus one counter on it. And the mutate cost is only 2W. So you, you save a mana. So basically what that means is you pay 2W and you mutate a non-human creature that you control. You put the the Vulpakeet either on top, which means the creature becomes a Vulpakeet, or you put it on bottom, which means whatever the creature was before, it stays, but it gains all of Vulpakeet's ability. And so the resulting creature depends on your choice, but either way, it has all abilities of, of both creatures. And then there are mutate triggers, which encourage you to mutate things more than once, because there are some triggers that say whenever you mutate, you get this beneficial effect, or you get an effect based on how many times it's mutated, which is cool. And the set is just lousy with with mutate cards. I think there's 30, 30 or more mutate cards in the set because some of the, well, all the wedge legendary creatures that are the face cards of the set are have mutate. I mean, I should say most of them do. <laughs> so mutate is an interesting thing, but it is inherently creature-based. It's inherently right. a, a creature ability, which means that it has to be very aggressively costed to be relevant in vintage. And we, But there are no examples I can think of, right? Well, there are very few examples. Go ahead. Sorry, 
that's just yeah basically i think you and i were going to say the same thing that there you have to be super aggressively costed to be relevant in vintage and let's not forget <laughs> you, that you have, have to have exponential growth potential yeah i know to be <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you have to have it's a two-card combo inherently you have to have a non-human creature yeah. in play first and then draw a mutate card and have it be aggressively costed and worth the investment and um so and inherently, it's just it's a high bar for any mutate card or ability to be relevant in vintage. And I have yet to see one, and our audience has yet to suggest one so far. We'll we'll see if that changes. So let's talk about the real heavy hitter, though, from a mechanical standpoint in Ikoria, and that is companion. Now, companion is an interesting thing, and I'm not going to read the whole FAQ entry upon it. But the long and the short of it is, companion cards can start the game in your sideboard. And they all have a precondition described in their rules text next to the companion ability. For example, all the permanent cards in your starting deck have to have converted mana cost of two or less. That's the condition on Luris of the Dream Den. And they have various conditions. There's several of them in the set. They have various conditions about the nature of the cards in your starting deck. If you meet their precondition, again, this is in sanctioned play. If you meet their precondition and you have this companion card in your sideboard, you may reveal a companion, one companion per game, and say, this is my companion this game. And then, if you do so, you may cast that card from your sideboard once during the game. Wow, so so a couple, just a quick nuances. Number mm-hmm. one, you have to reveal it during a game, and you can only cast it if you reveal it, and at the same time you reveal it. Uh, so you couldn't you reveal, like, it, reveal before it at the, start the beginning of, the game. of a game. Yeah. You do reveal it oh, before so the re- beginning, yes. So you reveal at the start of the game, and then you could reveal it mid-game, and then cast it. Uh, well, so I guess I'm drawing a confusing. Sorry, I'm confused so by your language it, about reveal, revealing. It's revealed the reveal, whole game. Okay, okay. It's it's well, it's in a state of reveals. <laughs> there used to be very strict rules about whether you could reveal a card in your sideboard at all. Those, or you could even look in your sideboard during the course of a game. Those rules right? have you, been amended a few a lo- times, and they will be again for this set. Yes. <laughs> but my point is that there, at one point in the not too distant past, players were actually prohibited from even looking in their sideboard during the course of a game it would be stalling or something else right, right? That, that's so, not the case anymore but of course not yeah but my point is that reveal is another step right like you looking at something yeah like a discrete contained space yeah. right is one thing but then you revealing it there are also rules on that like you can't just for example flip a card from your hand onto the table to reveal it to your opponent there are restrictions on that yep absolutely so reveal is a mechanical effect in magic right? Where you're compelled to do it or permitted to do it. One of the two. Definitely. And so this card, what you're saying about companion is that companion, essentially you have to do it at the beginning of the game, but you just said what you just read was that it sounds like you do it when you want to cast the card. Uh, so can you not reveal at the beginning of the game uh, and y- still allow? No, you must reveal it at the beginning of the game. That plus meeting its precondition, whatever is listed on the card next to the companion ability, are the two entries to so, being able to cast it at, then, at any point during the game. The Vintage Tournament is submit and des- a deck list and design a deck list that violates the bend and restricted list. So those, to my mind, are two very different things. Well, I, I would take a semantic issue with the word very different because, um, I mean, well, I, they're, my, they're two sides of the same <laughs> coin. But I see your point. Like, there are different ways you can use a companion, one of which, if you were to read the deck list, would preclude activating its companion ability <laughs> and one would satisfy it right i think that's what you're getting at is that well i'm asking a really simple question yeah. what is the mechanism for verifying it would be calling a judge. this okay yeah. so you call a judge 
Um, and then the judge is allowed to then pick up your deck and look through it, or would they just pull the deck list? Um, well, that's a good question. I would argue because that those, if the, the if the issue that's is very the deck, important difference, right? Uh, I, again, semantics. I don't consider it very well, no, important. No, if difference. I just brainstorm, yeah. If I just brainstormed and put two cards on top, right? Yeah. Having my judge go through it would change the order. Yeah, it would be a judge's Possibly. a judge's responsibility to maintain that order. Any cards you knew. That's why judges ask you when you go to a ruling that involves the sequence of your library if you know any cards in your library. Well, let's get on to the strategic implications then of companion. We have a couple of interesting ones on our list of cards specifically to review, but well, in short, okay. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I just want to say the most obvious. I don't know if it's a strategic implication, but the most obvious cost is there's actually two other things I wanted to talk about before we dive into the specific cards. One is the cost of a, ki- a sideboard slot, right? That seems significant, right? It is. Um, the second is uh, the interaction between the sideboard and, and main deck. You know, there's a long history in in type one and vintage about that, right? That, that largely changes around what was it M10 when you could no longer use wishes to get cards into exiled, and so the primary reservoir of potential cards to be retrieved is now essentially exclusively the sideboard for cards like Burning Wish, Cunning Wish, and Research and Development. Mm-hmm. And so now there's this is a, a kind of a different interaction with sideboards, right? Instead of pulling cards from the sideboard from your main deck with those kinds of cards, now you're pulling cards from your sideboard from your sideboard. So that's novel entirely in, in terms of that direction, right? Right, right. Yeah, it does create some novel directions for card movement, zone changes, as we like to talk about. <laughs> Obviously not in high quantity in the case of companion but still novel nonetheless right and the loss and how of many a- total companion cards do we have spoiled so far we know nine out of ten at the moment the tenth one okay. will be spoiled tomorrow we'll get it before the end of this show of course for our audience wow so yeah. theoretically you could put 10 in your sideboard <laughs> uh, well not theoretically at all you could absolutely do that it's just the theory is then how many of them you could wouldn't you be satisfy? able to meet all the conditions yeah <laughs> it, of it's not possible to meet them all i think unless you're but- unless your deck is all um lands because one of them requires odd converted mana costs, and one of them requires even. Well, there's the land deck in Vintage. <laughs> That's right. You'd have to have, <laughs> enough, have to be literally sixty land. lands though in order to do it. Oh wait! But if you were able to immediately, if you were essentially start with a fifteen card hand, <laughs> well, hold on. I, I should have said first that you're only allowed to have one companion revealed per game. You can put fifteen in uh, your. You can okay. put ten of them. I should say okay. in your sideboard, so the, so, but only one can be active basically per game. So, so barring draws, the most that you will be able to play from your sideboard per match is probably three. Uh, technically barring three. Draws. Yes, that's yeah. right. Barring, yeah, barring can, fourth games, games. etc. Right, right. Yeah. You could have legitimately three different com- uh, companions for your deck and use a different one in games one, two, and three. So there's a, a, a practical ceiling in the number of companion cards you'll probably ever run in a sideboard. <laughs> that's right. And that's it's right. Probably gonna be, it's probably going to be around... I mean, it's, it's certainly possible that there can be tactically use, different uses, but it's probably going to be around three or four at most. Well, the, and keep in mind, though, that the criteria are pretty diverse in the sense that okay. it's actually... It'd be really hard-pressed to meet any two of them, even. And Why don't we go through the criteria right now? Yeah, and sure. then we'll talk strategically. I'm just going to list the criteria irrespective of the cards. One at a time. Yeah. Great. Each permanent card in your starting deck has an activated ability. Each permanent, you said? Yes. Well, spells uh, can't I have I want to comment abilities. on each of these while you do this. So that's interesting. I mean, so so obviously, fetch lands have activated abilities. Well, all lands have um, activated abilities except for basically Urborg and the crappy legendary ones. Right. <laughs> okay. If it makes okay, mana, yeah. it has an activated ability. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. 
Okay, so the next um, one is and, what, and, then, and then there are obviously lots of creatures that have activated abilities. Not so in a, in a good deal of artifacts. Not so many enchantments that have activated abilities. Although right. there are like compulsion, so on and so forth. Yeah, and all planeswalkers are inherently in scope. Right. So that that doesn't seem terribly difficult to to satisfy. I mean, I would agree. You would. Yeah. Oh, it's also you, worth okay. noting that if you don't have any non-land permanence, you just automatically <laughs> satisfy this. Like if you're playing Storm, <laughs> right? And all your all permanents your mana, produce mana, then you've automatically satisfied you're, you're this. Good. Yeah. Very, that's a very vintage condition. And that one's on our list to review. Next okay. one is each non-land card in your starting deck shares a card type. So so you have to play all artifacts or you know all enchantments or all mm-hmm. creatures. Or it could be artifact creature, so on and so forth. We get it. Yep. Easy to, so again, very, easy to very satisfy, vintage-y. hard to make a good deck out of. Well, well we, <laughs> I don't know about that. We've got plenty of workshop decks that are all artifacts and lands oh that's true that's that's absolutely true uh i I didn't even think about that the the problem here of course is that this is a black green card and you would have to you would have to make a a workshop deck produce a lots of colored mana which it doesn't but you know you're totally right pretty easy to put this card and make it your your companion out of a workshop deck it's just uh not really going to get you anywhere (laughs) okay But, hey, it's worth considering. The next one is your starting deck contains only cards with odd converted mana costs and land cards. I don't know why I keep thinking about auto th- <laughs> with that. Probably because of the uh, the creature that prevents... Yeah, opponents. Void Winnower. Yeah. Um, say it one more time. Prevents All, your-, your starting deck contains only cards with odd converted mana costs and lands. Got it. So, one, three, five. Mm-hmm. That seems that seems actually quite reasonable for Vintage as well. Can't play Moxon. Um Ah, uh, zero. Mm-hmm. Ah, foiled. <laughs> the odd of the even is really bad for vintage because one makes you choose. Yeah. They all make you choose between ancestor recall and black lotus. Okay. Uh, never mind. I was <laughs> it, uh, it, I was skipping from one to three to five. I was like, that's not too bad. Yeah, I know. Uh, you know, I, know. I, I could live without. I could live without two and four. I mean, you don't lose too much. You lose time walk. You know, Jace the mind sculptor. Yeah. You know, lodestone golem. But but no zero zero. You you pretty much must have. I mean, I, I still think it's probably theoretically possible. Maybe for like a budget deck. Right. But um, you could use a uh, Simeon Spirit Guide and Elvish Spirit Guide as your accelerants. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> yeah, the other problem is that that if you're playing a budget deck, you often curve out, you know, like with Ancient Tombs. Yeah. So that also makes it two is more important if you're a more budget deck. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, the odd and even ones are pretty rough for vintage. The next one is number four. Each non-land card in your starting deck has a different name, aka Highlander. <laughs> awesome now wow we're not too this. far away from that being reasonable in vintage especially no. with the flurry of alternate mana cost counter magic we've gotten lately yeah you could well, conceivably also- build a, a storm deck that was all restricted cards and had for- one force of will and one force of negation Men- etc mental misstep no yeah. easily yeah. For- for- fluster storm maybe perhaps no i mean and even sans counter spells right you could you could easily design an aggressive combo deck with mm-hmm. lots of restricted cards and lots of other, you know, yep. Brian oh. Kelly singletons. Only one Mox Opal. It's not too hard. Yeah. No, no, no. That's 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 intriguing. I love that. Yeah. I love that. And it says non-land, too, which is actually kind of nice, because then you could still play four polluted deltas or whatever. Right. Four forbidden orchards, four whatever. Yeah. Next up, each permanent card in your starting deck has converted mana cost two or less. That seems to me that's not probably bad. one of the... Yeah. No, that's. I was gonna say that's probably the easiest to satisfy in some sense. So just very simply thinking, very simply, it essentially leaves every artifact accelerant that's vintage played in scope. Yep. Right. Yep. I mean, like, yeah, you can't play basalt monolith, but that has seen <laughs> play in type, you know, yeah. since 1994, 1995. 
Um, uh, it, it, it it's certainly only permanence too. Again, so if, yeah, if you're all just rituals leaves, and draw sevens, you're fine. There's almost you know you can't play with Bolossus Citadel or Necropotence or Yogmas yeah. Bargain. But I mean, look, if you're playing a Delver Pyromancer deck, it just means you can't play with Dak Faden. Otherwise, you're all in. Yeah, you and know, you can play, play PO. You can play PO. You just don't have access to Tinker oh, or Narset. That's dirty. That's dirty. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's a good point. I mean, top is within scope. Mm-hmm. Um. You could Thassa's Oracle even satisfies that in Doomsday, but you can't play so, Doomsday. Oh no, sorry, it's it's permanence. Yeah, yeah you can. So, You're yeah. right. You're yeah. right. Doomsday doesn't have anything that violates this normally anyway. Oh, Besides you know what? Necropotence. I'm sorry. Except, um, you know what? Street Wraith violates it. Well, you yeah, you couldn't play with Street Wraith and you couldn't <laughs> play with Necropotence. Yeah, but I mean, there are going to be trade offs, right? So. Naturally, naturally. Yeah, that one's also on our list to review. The last two have been. Okay. Okay, okay, next number up, five. Yeah, your starting deck contains only cards with converted mana cost three or greater and land card. Okay, so so we have one that's two or, or less mm-hmm. and one that's three or greater. Mm-hmm. Clearly, the two or less is the more is the easier to satisfy <laughs> for vintage. Yeah, I, would, I think three or greater is right out in terms of vintage. It's not yeah. it's not unheard I, of in the sense that you can still play Force of Will and dig through time. Right, there's still several playable cards that are three uh, or greater. Well, so so the problem is that workshop decks are one type of deck that could theoretically vault to three mm-hmm. automatically except that you're eliminating all moxin yeah and then dredge type decks which don't even need to play you know can, can play all big permanents there are three or more i think that dredge is probably still out for this because narcomoeba is too important yeah well also Narcomiba. companion is just incompatible with dredge as a baseline because the benefit of companion is having a card castable so well I mean, it's theoretically possible that a companion could cost zero, so I'm, I'm not ruling that <laughs> That's out. That's true. You're right. I have the benefit of looking at these cards. The cheapest one of these is three. So Okay. Yeah. You're, you make a fair point. If, if a companion was somehow... It could be other, an ornithopter. Yeah. An ornithopter, uh, <laughs> Otherwise free, <companion>. yeah. <laughs> All right. Moving on. The next one. Each creature card in your starting deck is a cat, elemental, nightmare, dinosaur, or beast. Well, that's that's pretty broad. I mean, there are a lot of humans and wizards in Vintage, but Elemental's a popular category. Mm-hmm. I, I think that seems very very reasonable. It's also fact. worth noting that if you that don't have any creatures in your deck, you've automatically uh, satisfied you, this. You took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Sorry. So that one's is I would are you keeping track of the ones that we are saying are plausible for uh, vintage? Yes. The ones yes. Or not? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so how many are plausible we've said so far? Basically maybe like um four out of well, okay, so we've done six. Four out of six we've said are plausible. Sounds right. And now this is number seven. So I would say five out of seven are plausible. Okay. Yeah. Next is no card in your starting deck has more than one of the same mana symbols in its mana cost. So you can't play mana drain. So y- you can't play necropotent. That is such a weird and interesting condition. I love it. Um, can't play force of will. Yeah. You can still play gush. You um, can still play gush and days and pyroblast and snap. Read it one more time. I'll just make sure I've got it completely clear in my head. No card in your starting deck has more than one of the same mana symbol got in it. its mana cost. Got it. Now it's interesting so, that restricted so, cards in vintage tend not to be this way. There's actually very right. few that have this condition. Uh, channel necro and um, Bargain, bargains no longer bargains restricted. no longer restricted. Yeah. What else? There's got to be one more that we're blanking on. But the point is, is that's a not a common condition for restricted cards in Vintage. No. And it, it applies to every spell in your deck. Or just yes. Permanent. It has no Spells, s- yeah. card type. That's what I was, yeah. that's what I was trying to but check on. But you still on. get so, all the fast mana, of course. All so the artifact mana. It doesn't matter. There's a nuance here that I want to make sure I understand. So um, Slash Panther type yeah. cards, like uh, Phyrexian mana, does that, does that count as Phyrexian mana or does it count as the alternative? Well, the card says the same mana symbol. 
So symbol. I would posit so that if you had a red a mana and a Phyrexian red, they were not the same mana symbol. But Got since it. no card exists okay. like that, we don't have to face that. Yeah. <laughs> Fair but enough. For example, a hybrid mana is oh, not the same as a blue or a red. That was my next question. Yeah, yeah that was my. So this, I assume that the hybrid symbol is different than yes. that blue or red. It is. Okay. Yeah. If there Great. was a card that had that had a demir mana and a blue and a black, that would still be legal. So the most powerful cards in vintage that this. By the way, the one card, the other restricted card that hits is Narset. Oh yeah, there so, you go. Yep. So the most powerful card this this prevents is certainly Force of Will. Absolutely. That would be my number one concern. Yep. So I, I think this is definitely playable. It just means that you're playing a non-Force of Will deck. The, the oh, condition. Uh, yeah. Or that you're digging deep for alternate counter spells because you can still play all the one mana oh, ones and you can still play way, dig, Days. It also hits Dig Through Time, by the way. Oh, yeah. That's Dig. There you go. You can still play Days, but you can't play Force of Negation or Misdirection either. Yeah. It hurts the pitch counters a lot. And Mindbreak Trap. Can't yeah, hit that. Use that. Yeah. You're, yeah, you're, I, I mean, you're I down think, to very few I think, free counters. I think... It, I just think you're down to a non a non force of will deck, which yeah. is not you know that's look in the universe of vintage decks. There's plenty of non force of will decks like yeah. the lands deck, the dredge deck, workshop deck, Eldrazi, sure. you know, hate bears. There's plenty of you know decks that don't need force of will or rely on it, but there's also a lot more that do. So I don't think this is presumptively unplayable in vintage. I just think its scope is more limited. Yeah, which probably applies for the other plausibles that we've talked about. So completely agree. And the ninth one is one we've already alluded to, which is your deck contains only cards with even converted mana cost which okay so which zero, does include two, Moxin. yeah zero two four six that let me just run it through is there anything that's super important at three in workshops besides like there's foundry inspector trinisphere trinisphere crucible that's kind of important crucible somewhat you could you could absolutely build a you workshop get, deck though that is choose three all the ley lines yeah you wouldn't be able to get serum powder you would lose yeah you would lose soul ring and mana vault yeah, Soul Ring and Man- Soul Ring and Mana Vault are pretty significant, but yeah. you you get Mana Crypt. It depends. So I would say that one is, let's see, losing Ancestral makes it, I think, categorically implausible for <laughs> any any blue deck. <laughs> I would argue, um, yes. Uh, so I think that one is probably on the side of less plausible, but it's it, I wouldn't rule it out entirely because you could probably put it into an Eldrazi deck. Is mm-hmm. there anything in Eldrazi that's, that's one or mm. three? That's really interesting. There is an I don't Eldrazi think there Displacer, is. I think, is three, right? Uh, y- sorry, I was picturing the tribal Eldrazi deck. Yeah, obviously, in, in white Eldrazi, there's this Displacer and then either Glow Rider or, or the other one, the Vryn Wing The Eldrazi 2.0. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a few. So it's, it's, I'd say that one's on the outside looking in, but it's. You would be hampering yourself quite a bit. Yeah. 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 Well. So presumptively no, but plausible. Yeah. So the good news is, from a companion standpoint, that the majority of them are plausible. The yeah. the bad news is, is that in some cases, the effect you're getting for the cost is <laughs> is pretty <laughs> not not noteworthy. There are some exceptions to this, the ones that we're going to review. But for example, the last one we just did, your starting deck contains only cards with even mana costs. That's stapled onto a six mana six six. We should add, Steve, that since we've started this recording, we've got the tenth companion card. And it is Yorian Sky Nomad for three Azorius Azorius. It's a legendary creature, Bird Serpent, which is a 4-5. The companion condition is your starting deck contains at least 20 cards more than the minimum deck size. Not not vintage playable. (laughs) Right. The abilities are flying, and when Yorian enters the battlefield, exile any number of other non-land permanents you own and control, return those cards to the battlefield at the beginning of your next end step. 
Okay, so let's resummarize then, because now that we've yeah. done all ten, yep. How many did I say were not at all? Did we say were not at all vintage playable? Just the companion. Just because of the companion conditions. Yeah. We've counted Yorion and Umori. Categorically and not playable. <laughs> Obosh and Garuda. That's the odd and the even ones. That's f- and so, then so four of the ten the, are categorically. And then, and, and then the, and then Karuga, who's everything that costs three or more. So half of them are categorically unplayable. Okay. Half. And then there were one or two that were questionable. And then. Yeah. The, the one that's about creature types that's just a lord for those creature types is like, okay, that's some cases free, but also not worth it. And then the ones that restrict your mana costs to two or less, Luris is playable. The one that restricts your mana costs to one pip only is borderline, but pretty difficult. And then Lutri, the Highlander one, is also borderline but difficult. The ones that were closest to playable were Zerda, that requires activated abilities, and Luris, that requires um, everything costs two or less. So that's not bad for a new mechanic, right? In fact, that's borderline dangerous. It's actually, for, I mean, for 10, I think there's some danger here, yeah, but yeah. this is a good point for, for half of them to be considerable in vintage yeah. is impressive. And, and two, you know, presumptively, you know, feasible. That's twenty yeah. percent. That's that's a that's a pretty good batting average for vintage. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. Well, let's let's just begin our review. Though I think we've expedited yeah. our review considerably, so let's dig into companions. I want to talk. Well, sorry, I want to talk about a couple more things about companion. Okay, <laughs> I know there are so many implications of this card that we've hit a, a bunch on the tournament implications, just uh, tournament conduct, and we've hit on the deck construction in implications. I want to talk about play patterns and the risks that this this mechanic introduces to decks irrespective of we, what any of these cards do okay you want to do it in the abstract i was yeah. going to say that, that that kind of conversation seems more fruitful in the in a particular context when situated in a in a with a specific application but i'm willing i'm willing to go along with this <laughs> i'm willing to go along with you kevin well, on this then, um, then, i just want to say one one quick thing before yeah. you move on to that though which is that the whole conversation we had about enforcement is obviously very different on magic online because oh, you course. can't even submit a deck, right? And so it'll check when you it'll yeah. check when you reveal. I assume it'll give you like an option to reveal and a, a point in time at the beginning of the game, and then you'll yeah, you know, it'll check for you. But I just want to say that that's that seems to me a, an important difference. Okay, it will go be. proceed. Well, and I don't want to overblow this, but I do want to point out that the you observed as part of your story of the year for 2019 the the illusory impact of the London Mulligan, right? It, very difficult to measure, but we all intuitively feel it, and we believe that we can observe its effect irrespective of the cards that were introduced into that year to some degree, right? Yes. I believe that this companion ability, if it turns out to be playable above a, a particular threshold, I would say, of obscurity, has a similar homogenizing effect on gameplay in that even worse, wow. conceptually, it's even worse than the London Mulligan, because the London Mulligan still, there's a variance, obviously. This companion mechanic removes all variants for one card in your opening hand. Interesting. And so, interesting. And you can approach that from a deck construction standpoint and say, if this card by itself is good enough to win me this game, then I could just mulligan to the precondition of being able to cast it, right? And I don't have to find anything in particular. Your deck could be, as we've joked about before, 60 lands. 60 lands. Yeah. If the one card you're going to get from that is good enough to win you a game, then you're 100% to, to hit, basically. Now, obviously, that's extreme, uh, point, right? I but would. I, I think would there's ast- a subtle effect here. Your your point is well taken. I would just say that um, while that's a theoretic possibility, I would assume 
that they have have not and would not design a card of that power. <laughs> they would, would they would actually confront us with that possibility. I would just make that assumption. I'm willing to be proven wrong on that, but yeah. I would just make that assumption. I think that assumption is fundamentally flawed because we know we have documented evidence both stated and implied that they don't design for eternal formats. In fact, they don't design for no. anything outside of standard, which means no, there's no controls in place to have, to stop what you're talking about. Disagree. Disagree. Th- those are two different things. Lack of controls and design uh, intentionality are not the same thing. And uh, while I agree with the former, I, I disagree with the latter. I, I've seen on Twitter designers talk about in the file notes, they make notes, they'll say things like potentially overpowered in vintage or potentially blah, blah, blah. And so <laughs> I think that that I think those notes, while they're not, again, part of the design process, they probably are part of the um, development process. And well, they probably do take considerations to try and nerf things. So the c- scenario that you present in the abstract is like a car that's so... I think the way you put it, I'd have to go back and listen. But I think what the quote was, so powerful that you just win the game if the condition is met. Yeah. And so that's why I said, I doubt, again, willing to be proved wrong, uh, but I doubt that they would make a card that... Um, that created that hazard. Um, well, I agree that, that my statement was one to an absurd degree, but I believe that the amount of restricted cards that they, the now restricted cards that they've printed in the last two years demonstrates that the kind of design control that you're alluding to is not sufficient to stop a, a considerable amount of mistakes from a vintage to- perspective. To- totally agree. And I think there's, look, for two reasons. Number one is that all humans are fallible, mm. which including designers, even experts, right? We all make mistakes. But number two, there is an, an inherent difficulty in prediction, right? <laughs> that, that that magic metagames and decks are complex systems, and there are emergent properties that can't be reduced to kind of X's and O's, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the fundamental features that you, you have to see play out, and there are unintended interactions, right? There are things that happen that you couldn't have, a designer couldn't have foreseen. But here's the, here's the thing. For, for something to be the, so absurd that just like playing it by itself is so powerful, you know, that, that you essentially build a like let's say a 55 card land deck and then five spells to like give yourself a hundred percent chance on turn two or three to be able to resolve this mm-hmm. and that just wins the game my guess is that that's pr- like extremely improbable yeah you know yeah. well i would agree with you there the other point i wanted to make <laughs> feels like to me it's inextricably linked to this concept i'm alluding to but it's not directly and that is how if any one of these companion cards is problematic to the degree that we're concerned with in vintage and to the point where we would discuss well, taking I action. I haven't expressed any concern so far, by the but way. That's, I'm saying you and I are alluding to a, a type of problem. That's what okay. I'm talking about. We are not, I'm not saying we have said that one of them is a problem. We're saying we're alluding to a scenario by which something is bad and needs to be taken action from a ban and restricted standpoint. These cards are functionally immune to restriction. Of course. Yeah. Which I think is inherently problematic. Well, so they have banned cards recently in Vintage. But they were because of a particular card type designed for a particular format, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Which were, you know, so so it's not out of the realm of impossibility to imagine that a particular kind of card type could be banned because it was designed for a particular format, much like sure. the cards I. Which are the, what are the names of the cards I just wrote? Yeah, I think you're talking about the agendas from Conspiracy. No, which, the conspiracies. Yes, yeah. the conspiracies. Sorry, yeah, they're um, conspiracies, but they had the, well, whatever. The point is, you're right; they're very similar to companions yeah. in the sense that they just start outside the game and have an effect. Yeah. So, so here's, but yes, you're right. Restriction as a policy would not work. Again, though, my default assumption, and I'm willing to be proven wrong through our discussion, is that um, 
there's not going to be a companion that's so so powerful that just resolving it is going to inherently win the game by itself. It'll probably interact. If a companion is proven to be extremely powerful, it's because of an interaction with other types of cards, mm. right? I mean, it's usually, there are very few cards that are just so powerful that it's win the game by themselves. Now, there are examples, right? Like Narset. But even Karn, like Karn, the, like the Karn that got restricted, right? Relies on having a Time Vault or a Microsoft Lattice in the format, right? Yeah. So, yeah. um, or, and being a heavy artifact accelerant format. So, um, I think here's what, I, here's what I'm, I get everything you're saying, but so far my primary concern is not actually with any of the possible power level effects. Now, again, we haven't dived into the specifics. I'm, I'm actually just more, more concerned with tournament administration. Yeah. Put it that way. Okay. Well, I think that it probably makes sense given that we spent so much time talking about this mechanic that we review the companion cards first. What do you say? Absolutely. So let's start with the one that's closest to the top of our list, and that is Luris of the Dream Den. So this is one of the ones I alluded to, obviously. We reviewed all the ones we knew about the mechanics. But let me just talk about how Luris is a one Orzhov Orzhov creature. Legendary creature, Cat Nightmare. Luris is a 3-2 companion. Each permanent card in your starting deck has converted mana cost two or less. This is the condition. That's the condition. Yes. Yes. So you got to have it, a cheap deck, two or less, for everything that's uh, a permanent. But it's only permanent, so you can play Force of Will and dig through time. Right. The card's ability is lifelink. During each of your turns, Meh. you may <laughs> cast one permanent spell with converted mana cost two or less from your graveyard. Similar to Emery, Lurker of the Lock, who allows you to cast artifacts from your graveyard. Luris lets you play one of any kind of permanent. And it does say cast, so it can't be lands. But anything costs two or less, which is going to be any non-land permanent in your deck, given the way you've built it, once per turn. Yes. So, just let me go through some, let's just go through some, before we evaluate its power, mm-hmm. even power and toughness, let's just focus on this last ability, because this is really the heart, this right? Is the, of this, this is this the, the crux right here, yep. Yeah. So, let's just list out, let's just brainstorm mm-hmm. some permanents that you might recur that would draw value from this. Mm-hmm. The most obvious is Black Lotus. <laughs> Agreed. The most obvious is Black Lotus. And then beyond that, again, it's a permanent spell which means it's probably something that you uh, activate and sacrifice, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so it has. To, it's, there's probably some sort of like activation sacrifice involved. Tormod's Crypt, um, Nile Spellbomb. Yeah, keep going. Uh, Soul Guide Lantern. So there, you know, there's a whole family of the yeah. the anti uh, graveyard cards that fit this description. There's not a lot of cards that in Vintage are designed to sacrifice themselves as their primary function. But in things like workshops, there's plenty that do anyway. So you've got your Ravager and your Ballista, for example. Those both count, yep. Yep. And, and of course, all the Lotus variants, Lotus Petal, Lo- yep. Lion's Eye Diamond, Naturally, all count. naturally. And then there's some more obscure cards that could be made better because of this effect, like your Seal of Cleansing, for example, the Distant uh, Chant yes. variant that sits Good in point. play, that would suddenly become much better if you could play one every turn against Shops, for example, or Oath. Um and, but I think it's worth noting that while there is not an exhaustive list of cards that are actively played that fit this description, it's this is one of those cards that we alluded to during our discussion of Companion, where the precondition is pretty much nullified if you simply don't have any permanents you're planning to play in the game. Like, right. if your the, deck the is TPS, the, 
and then your only card you're going to recur <laughs> with this is do is is, is black lotus then, then there you go wow that's interesting and it's also worth noting that if you've got black lotus you could just play lotus play luris and play lotus again so like when lotus yeah. is involved luris it's, is just a free spell right it's not even from your hand right so so just to spin out that scenario a little bit further so you're playing you are playing tps right and or po you're or PO, and your opponent has, and just to make this a little bit more fanciful mm-hmm. and fun, your, your opponent has, uh, has, uh, we'll just say, uh, uh, extirpated all of your tendrils of agony. They're all gone. <laughs> I see where you're getting you could, Sure. Yeah. You could, um, theoretically, uh, you know, ritual, get this, and then, like, I don't know, time, time vault infinite or something. Yeah. Right. So you could, yeah, so you could, you're, you you're could go off. getting at that this functions as an alternate win con, and I would completely agree. This is just, it has a recursive ability, so it's an engine card, albeit a little bit slow, but it's, it's, it's a slow engine. But it also just is a, a win con if you need it to be. It, like, Key Vault is a perfect example, which obviously Key Vault satisfies the condition of this particular companion. And so you could construct a deck where all the deck does is put Key Vault into play. You don't even need a way to win the game right. in the deck. You just assemble Key Vault. And oh. then you play Luris and attack them for the kill. And oh, yes. and oh, by the way, Luris enables the combo. Like if you're if either one of your combo pieces is destroyed, you just replay it with Luris. So so there's basically two ways to get value with this card. One is through permanents that you sacrifice or otherwise activate, and they are destroyed mm-hmm. as a part of the activation. The second is recurring cards that get countered. Right. So like for example, the example you just gave. Right. Like your opponent can try and counter your time vault over and over again, but unless they can exile it, they're not going to stop you from assembling. Yeah. Right. Yep. Um, the other, but the other thing about countering is that there can be lots of effects that are really powerful, like defense grid, where you can just like, your opponent just can't stop you from getting it over and over again. By yeah. the way, I wanted to mention a couple of other activated abilities. There's ex- engineer explosive. Is oh, that's a good one. Yep. I know that's one of your favorite cards. Oh yeah. And you um, can recast it with different combinations of man, of colors too. <laughs> so you can actually get different things out of your, out of one copy of EE. That's fun. That, that that strikes me as a potentially very interesting kind of mm-hmm. control control option. Yep. Um, another activated ability which hasn't seen a lot of play is Kasali Pride Mage. There you go. You get sure reusable That's in the vein of the Seal of Cleansing. Sure. And there's right. lots of it's, variants it's a, of that kind of thing. Like, um, well, there's the green version of Seal of Cleansing, uh, Seal also, of Primordium. Also in the in the vein of, um, I think this works. Yes, it does. Sorry, I wanted to think about it for just a moment. But in the vein of two casting costs or less, <laughs> you know, you know what other combo. Besides Time Vault falls into that. Oh yeah, Painter. Pa- yeah, exactly. Painter Servant Grindstone. Yep. Conveniently two and one. Yep, there you go. <laughs> um And things uh, like and disruptive things like Lavinia are good here, right? Because Pyroblast is rampant, and so your Lavinias are frequently removed, but if you're playing a Lavinia every turn, your opponent's gonna run out of Pyroblast. For sure. And um you know, you could replay things like Snapcaster Mage mm-hmm. or um and then get even more value. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, another option would be, you know, replaying uh, a, a Jace Fringe Prodigy, which you've used all the abilities on, and it's kind of the graveyard. You know, you've, Love you've it. lost all the loyalty. Love it. Um, yep. And your lots of sideboard effects are permanents that are this cheap. And oh. so, like your your containment one, way, priest, your containment priest, yes. and your rest in peace. Well, rest in peace is a bad example because it counteracts Luris, but containment priest is a good one. And yeah, I mentioned Tormod's Crypt. Here, here's a very interesting one, Kevin. Vampire Hex Mage. Oh, I see where you're going with that. So you can enable enable the Dark Depths combo there in a another, different way. Another two card combo that this recurs. It oh, you know recurs. that's that's especially interesting too because that combo can be fully enabled out of the graveyard vis a vis Life from the Loam now. 
You can just loam uh, the point. whole combo into the graveyard, including the hex mage, and then loam back the land and cast the hex cast mage with Luris. Yeah. yeah, and you're in black anyway with Urborg. You can cast this off yep. of Urborg. Yep. Um, yeah, any yeah, deck so that's we, planning to cast a vampire hex mage is not going to have much trouble casting Luris too. No, no, <laughs> not at all. So, the, so we've given you a lot to think about, a lot of options. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I heard first about this card on the day it was spoiled from Cyrus on Twitter talking about how it's just kind of a free roll in your sideboard for legacy storm decks. It's, it's just not to get more artifacts. Well, it, it lets you rebuy LED. Like the, the, the turn yeah. you have an LED, assuming you're breaking an LED, right. this is just a free play. Right. You, you just work this well, into your, your tutor chain or whatever and, and announce this and rebuy your LED and keep going. It does cost you a, a sideboard slot, so it's yeah. not entirely cost free, but yeah. Another interesting option is, uh, Somehow recurring ba- Baleful Strix. Mm-hmm. Get that going again, too. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 you can double up on value engines. Like, you already cited Snapcaster Mage. That's that's a two-for-one every time. And in some matchups, it's pretty easy to get a Snapcaster to trade in combat or something, right? Against against shops or bug or something like that. It's kind of trivial to get a Snapcaster to die, at which point you're getting tons of value. Yeah, I don't think that this card is going to break Vintage by any stretch. I mean, the the, the power here is in attrition right the power here is in r- repeated access to cards but because it's a three mana <laughs> spell it's hard to get this into play and get some kind of broken effect even if you do have black lotus because you're you still know what is one, breaking it, even right you know one weird oddity of this though mm-hmm. one weird oddity is it says during each of your turns it doesn't specify the step or phase in That's which right. you have to do it <laughs> so it's yeah. not like uh you know the beginning of your upkeep or right you know the beginning of combat and the cards the card in question doesn't have to have started so, in any particular zone during that turn, right? Right. You could use now, this as a tutor within Tomb. Now, unless that's true, but unless the permanent has has um, flash, you're going to probably have to do it during your main main phase, one of your main phases. Yeah, one would expect. You're right. Most things that satisfy this condition have to be played at sorcery speed. Yeah. So, what do we think about this business? I mean. If this card didn't come for free out of your sideboard as the eighth card in your opening hand every game, do you think this card's even playable? Oh, no. Yeah. No. I'm with you there. It, it, uh, we wouldn't be talking <laughs> about this question. if it didn't have the companion ability. Right. I think one of the, the key... So there's there's several questions that I think can help bring to focus the real value here, the real value proposition. The first and perhaps most important question is, how reliably are you going to get value from recursion, right? And what, and how, what kind of contribution is that going to make to advancing your game mm-hmm. like it you know and, and the reliability is really the key right because let's assume you build some sort of i don't know vampire hex mage combo deck that has a lot of lands mm-hmm. even if you can get this out is it you know you're going to get a lot of value out of it out of it 30 percent of the time 60 percent of the time or 90 percent of the time that question to me seems very important and then secondly the value you get out of it is it going to be like it wins the game mm-hmm. or is it substantially advance the game or is it give you a small advantage, right? Those are three very different possibilities. Yeah. And my fear, my fear for the answer to both of these questions is it's the lower end of both both possibilities, right? Yeah. That it's I a think, small advantage rather than a huge one. That it's not terribly consistent in terms of getting value. I think the answer changes pretty dramatically by deck matchup. Deck. Yeah. Yeah. And by what you're recurring, I would argue that against Dredge, this is huge. If I'm just going to Tormod's Crypt you or Niall's Spellbomb you every turn of the game, that's that's a winning strategy in and of itself, right? And you can and you can do it immediately. So if you have a Tormod's Crypt in the graveyard, 
Yeah, that's and right. You play this. You, you crypted. Play this yeah, I crypted. crypted you on turn one, and then on turn two, I cast my Luris and my Crypt is back. That's huge in that matchup, I would argue. That's true. I, I think that's that really Dredge true. is if, kind of the extreme of that because Dredge is kind of the only matchup in Vintage right now where you're ex- you'd really like to use a, you'd really like to sacrifice a thing every turn. <laughs> if you're playing a Dark Ritual deck like Doomsday, mm-hmm. right? Right now, what's your sideboard? I was playing Doomsday in my sideboard, and I think Eco Baronins was something like two to three Tabernacles and then Ravenous Traps, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Which is a very reasonable sideboard plan. But if you could, if you could put one of these in your sideboard, and you have four Dark Rituals in your deck, mm-hmm. I would yep. consider you could even make it more compact, right? You could play, let's say, four Tormod's Crypts and one or two Lantern or one Lantern and this, and get potentially a, a more you know devastating blow. Yeah. Right. You completely see what I'm saying? agree. Yeah, absolutely. Completely yeah. agree. I think when Luris, at the, you know, the the attrition based elements of, that Luris brings to the table are amplified in a matchup like that against Dredge, and I think it gets actually bigger for when you're not a ritual deck. Honestly, I, I appreciate yeah. your example, but a ritual deck is not making the most of the attrition parts. Right. It's a it's a preordained deck Time. that's going to really yeah. appreciate the attrition part. Right. Um. Now, but, but your point thing- is still made. Obviously, the Doomsday deck we already said had the limitation of not being able to play Street Wraith, yeah. but a preordained deck, a Xerox deck, is also not going to be have the advantage of being able to play DAC. Yeah, which and, is and pretty Narset. much yeah, DAC yeah. and Narset. I mean, at the, no, you're right. DAC that's that's pretty hampering. I, I can't argue with that. I was going to extend my example though about having the impact of the cards you're recurring by talking about the shops matchup next. If you're some kind of Esper preordained deck, well, you don't have to be black and white, so. But whatever. If you're some kind of blue and then Orzhov <laughs> X preordained deck, what can you really recur that's going to give you great value against shops turn over turn? It's actually kind of hard to say in my eyes. Like I mentioned Seal of Cleansing. Yeah. You mentioned it really EE. Is. EE's pretty good against shops. And if yeah. you can play it turn over turn, it's actually it's actually very strong. Yeah, I mean Seal of Cleansing is is very good, but it's not the greatest. Pretty, it's a weak no, that's a weak card. Yeah. There's a reason it's, it's not pretty, played. Right. It's pretty slow these days. EE's pretty good. I've brought EE in against shops and from a number of our sideboards. I love that card. It's it's pretty darn good. It is. It is good. Uh, But Kevin, didn't we talk about how there was that the two mana red creature saw play in Vintage recently? That does the shatter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, The crater maker. Yeah. So you could imagine this being Grixis sideboard with that too. Grixis or Jeskai, right? You can go. You can black. Black or white out of this Luris. Or white. Yeah, I completely agree. Crater maker is probably a much better example than the. Than the seal of cleansing. Seal of cleansing is a mana cheaper because you don't have to pay to activate it. But your point is still well made. Crater Maker is absolutely a played vintage card that wants to be sacrificed repeatedly. I don't think there's much else though. I don't think this pushes you very hard uh, in the shops matchup. I really don't. The body's not that impressive. Three two life link. Yeah, it buys you a little bit of time. Might trade with something, but it's it's not that good. And also, it's worth noting that any matchup where you're trying to activate something over and over again, Ferrixian Revoker becomes a, a larger liability because you're not going to have a buffet of options in your graveyard, I wouldn't expect. <laughs> you know, unless right. the game goes pretty long, you're probably going to have access to the one thing. And if they revoke that seal of cleansing that's sitting in your graveyard, well, then your, your shenanigans are basically over. That said, the workshop decks, at least the, the Ravager builds, are still decks that are trying to kill you with creature combat. And so that brings back in the notion of if you're just recasting a Snapcaster Mage every other turn... That, that goes a fair bit, right? The Snapcaster Mage can be recurring the Swords to Plowshares or the Lightning Bolt that you also have. And so it's not like you have to be generating... Against shops, you don't have to be generating a sacrifice effect to get value out of this, in my opinion, if you're a, 
a kind of creature-based deck that's going to be putting things in front of their creatures. One, I think, important question that we've saved for late in this conversation is how does this card help or hinder uh, an ostensibly uh, control mirror? What can you be doing with this, assuming it doesn't immediately die to a lightning bolt, against a Jeskai player that's really going to sway the tide in your favor? I think that's a very important question. It's really, it's really hard to imagine in that in that particular matchup. That's what gives me some pause about this card. Yeah. Uh, oh, by the way, if you're Jeskai and, and you've got this in your sideboard as your companion, then you're not playing with Monastery Mentor. Yeah, th- that's, that's why I don't think this. Yeah, this isn't a Jeskai card. You're going to be playing. That's why I said Delver earlier. If you're playing Blue Red. Yeah, I'm, I'm with but you. I thought this your is question was, card. what are you doing? What are you using this against Jeskai for? Yeah, that's what. Yeah, that was my original question. Absolutely. What are you recurring with this, that, such that you're really glad you had this in your sideboard? To me, it feels like Jace Vrind's Prodigy that you said earlier is a, is a decent example. You can use him up and replay him, and then Snapcaster Mages for double value. But it's not that good. They're not dying that often in that kind of matchup. I mean, so basically, you're getting rebuys on your two mana creatures, and if you're something like Bug, you're getting rebuy on your Deathrite Shaman or, or your Dark Confidant, right? pretty hard to build bug without leo and narset in that matchup but hey it's possible so i just this kind of engine there's plenty of engines like this that get you a, a card's worth of value every turn and i i think they're just there are better ones in vintage i think your example you started with an example about doomsday against dredge earlier and while i don't think you're getting the attrition value as i said i actually think that because of how comparatively free Luris is in storm style decks i think that's actually you might see more of it but even then, in Vintage, you're losing Tinker, which is huge. I don't want to cut Tinker Citadel out of my deck necessarily just to play this kind of effect. I think it's, I think this card's much more impactful in Legacy, where you already have decks that meet its precondition just by their definition. So it sounds like you're honing in, homing in on a conclusion. Yeah, I feel like this card is playable, but I don't think it makes the all the decks we're just talking about better. Well, that's kind of important. Yeah, like it's, you said it yourself. This is not a Jeskai card. If it's going to be in some kind of mid-rangey control deck, it's got to be in something more like Grixis. I think it hurts Bug too much to play this. You lose Narset and Leo and your whatever four-mana Planeswalker you're playing du jour. So I just don't think... This is not like a, a preordained engine card, I don't feel, unless you're coming up with a really new spin on that deck. And, and you're right, it's probably something more like Grixis. At which point, I think then you got to look at this as maybe a sideboard kind of play for Doomsday but you lose the street rates in the Necro, I just, I'm just, I think the cost is too high. I think there might be a new deck here that someone like Matt Murray is going to 5 a league with, but I just don't think this is good enough to justify the things you have to cut in Vintage, even if they're one or two ofs. Totally agree. Yeah. So I'm going to... Sideboards gonna, are so tight. Yeah. You really have to have clear value. Now, I wouldn't put... I, I think that if there is a value proposition for this, it's in a kind of a Brian Kelly type grindy deck, like a bug deck. Or something where you can just recur some things over and over again and really get some value out of it. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that's where this could show up, and I think it might. I think it very well might. I mean, yep. just because the sheer quantity of things that you could recur, like Deathrite Shaman, you know, potentially, uh, like we talked about, Tormod's Crips. I, I think there is there is definitely a hole against shops, but maybe Engineer Engineer Explosives is the option, or maybe just frankly just being able to replay creatures is enough, right? Yeah, replay a a Deathrite Shaman, but I don't. But Bug. Can you play bug without Leovold? <laughs> can you play can you play bug without three casting cost creatures? Without, yeah, Leo or Dak or Narset. I I don't know. It's tough. The the cards you would be recurring with Aluris don't seem to make up for that gap that you've lost. Yeah. It's All gonna right. be a tough trade off. 
I'm going to go with zero for Luris, but I think that it'll be fun if somebody does 5-0 a league with it. I think someone's going to stuff it into a sideboard in top eight somewhere, so I'm going to go one. Okay, that's reasonable. I look forward to seeing it if it happens. All right, let's move on and talk about another companion. This one already has some Sturm and Drong in the community because of its impact on EDH, but you and I don't need to talk about that here and now. We are here to talk about Lutri, the Spell Chaser. <laughs> this adorable legendary creature, Elemental Otter, costs one is it is it. It's a 3-2. Companion. This is the condition. Each non-land card in your starting deck has a different name. So you're playing Highlander. The card's abilities are Flash. When Lutri the Spell Chaser enters the battlefield, if you cast it, copy, target, instant, or sorcery spell you control. You may choose new targets for the copy. So what we've got here is a three mana, is it, fork, but you have to be playing Highland. And it's worth noting that the ability of the card requires you to have cast it, which means you can't blink Lutri and copy spells or oath Lutri up and copy spells. Not that we were really in the business of doing <sighs> So what is the value of a fork in your sideboard? It seems pretty good, actually. I mean, fork is a weak card right now, but the value proposition of a 3-2 flash creature, god, that's that you can pay for one red-blue or blue-blue one? <sighs> that seems like it might be worth it, Kevin. Well, it has an interesting effect, not just the fork. It, has, it can only copy spells you control, so that's nice. It's decent in counter battles, right? If on turn two you've got two lands and a mox and you go to force their spell and they pyroblast, you can respond by forking your force. So it functions like a counter spell in a lot of cases. And the 3-2 flash body is decent at, at pressuring planeswalkers. So I do think there's some utility here. And unlike the fact that, as we just reviewed with Luris, Luris is an engine, right? You want Luris in play repeatedly to really get the value. Lutri is just kind of a one-time investment. And obviously, you could recur Lutri. You could get it back from your graveyard if it died, that kind of thing. But the investment of copying your own Ancestor Recall or copying your Force of Will or your Dig Through Time, right, in the mid-game, that's that's Very, pretty attractive. Yeah. The downside, the opportunity cost is you're only playing one Force of Will. Yeah, That so... So we had said at the beginning of the of the, uh, the, when we were reviewing the companion condition, we said that we had serious concerns about the Highlander thing was plausible, but it wouldn't was probably not plausible in a for, in a Force of Will deck. Remember, and I think that's yeah. still true. Yeah. So, although actually, when you said it wasn't a Force of Will deck, you were actually talking what? about a different card. You were talk you were talking about one a different card. Well, a different we, condition. We said that. Because we said you're, that you're you, know, you, you made the point that you could pile. It, it no, was the, it was the mana abilities up, one. You know, one mind break trap, one force of negation, one force of will, one misdirection. Okay, it was just yeah. all true. But I yeah. have I have concerns about about this. <laughs> when when modern Jeskai decks are going up to like six and seven zero mana, seven and eight even zero mana counter spells between force of will and force of negation and days to go with your one mental misstep. That suggests something about the nature of the format, right? And what it means to play a mid-rangey control deck in the format. And cutting out the possibility of three or four of those, well, three three to five, I would argue, of those counters between forces, forces, and dazes, that definitely has a material impact on the way your deck approaches certain matchups. It's just hard, hard, much harder to be control deck when you're playing Lutri. That said, most of those decks don't play main deck misdirection. And most of them don't play main deck mind break trap. So you can shore up some of those gaps, but I have to believe that this deck construction is going to come back to bite you, though, in a, in a greater number of games than maybe Lutri was worth. It's hard to balance, though. Here's the thing, Steve. <laughs> it's really hard to balance an incremental effect like Lutri, like a fork, when you have access to it 100% of your game, or pr- 
functionally probably 80 or 90% of your game. That's hard to balance because we've never had anything like this before. We've never had a card where it's always in your opening hand. No matter even yeah. how you mulliganed, it's always in your opening hand. Even Dredge keeps non-bizarre hands every once in a while, right? Trying to fi- this is like a, this is like a dredge. This is like a bazaar of Baghdad that is always in your opening hand. <laughs> I mean, you can't avoid it. Hundred percent of the time, it's in your opening hand, unless you forgot to declare it as your companion or something. So it's super hard to evaluate the the marginal utility of a card that's always there. At which point, the other conditions become right that you find sufficient mana to cast it. Which again goes back to my point about how this presence of a companion influences your mulligan decisions. I don't think a it's not like a mid-rangey vintage deck like Jeskai or Rug is going to bend over in its deck construction just to get the three mana to cast a Lutri. It's not that powerful of an effect. But the incremental value just has to be recognized. Like, And as we said for Luris, you would have to evaluate how good the card is by matchup. So we talk about your uh, mid-rangey control deck and you can copy your own Force of Will or your own Pyroblast or whatever. That's That's nice, but that's not game breaking that's not a new archetype or anything you're just copying something you've got well what kind of things would you want to copy that really do change the game that really do wish you had access to a fork and that's a lot yeah. harder to answer in vintage i mean there's you, and, you don't you can't also, copy a po I mean, it's, that it's doesn't accomplish anything <laughs> it's misleading to say that right because you can't you can't use mm-hmm. it to copy your opponent's counter magic so that's right you can't copy their ancestral with it which is something you would love right. to do otherwise yeah it's is there a sideboard card that you're in the habit of bringing in that gets way better if you copy let's, it? Let's 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 reverse engineer this a little bit differently because I th- let's just think. So okay. what deck? What deck has blue and or red? Doesn't need four force of will and has spells that are high value enough to fork. Start there. So I mean, <laughs> it's probably got to be an aggressive storm deck, right? Because there just isn't. I mean, everything that's force of. I mean, force of will is basically an. Storm doesn't benefit well, from fork. you do you do run things like you could run Wheel of Fortune with it, right? I mean, Demonic Tutor. Um, Wheel of Fortune doesn't or, benefit from fork. Point. Demonic Tutor, yeah, Dark Petition, <laughs> Demonic, Demonic Tutor, Tutor those kinds of cards do. Yeah, uh, Dig, dig yeah. Through Time and Cruise absolutely do. I just think Ancestral does. So the restricted blue stuff, Time Walk absolutely. Don't yeah. think Time Walk really does. Holy crap! You can you can bounce this with Jace the Mind Sculptor. And bring it back to True. your hand for repeated forks. Doesn't you're not getting no. the original card back, of course. But you could fork every turn. So you could build a bit yeah. of an engine that way. So it's 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 interesting. The premise you created was not bad, but I think what we came back around to is the only cards that really benefit from forking are the cards that the control decks yeah. play. Uh, the I incremental think that card mean, draw that means that right? this far this this card has a fundamental contradiction. Really, <laughs> I kind of I think I see what you're getting at. Yeah, it's not like forking is bad, and it obviously gets materially better when you have access to it a hundred percent of the time that's the thing that's the thing you know again the same question that we asked for luris if this didn't have companion there's no way we'd be talking about this card right it's not worth putting in your deck it's not high impact enough but if it's just sitting there in addition to your opening hand every time it's so hard to evaluate the value of it how many cards so if your deck is just riddled with counter magic as much as you're allowed in a highlander version you've got force force days Pyro, Fluster, Misstep, Misdirection, Mindbreak Trap. I'm, I'm forgetting one, I'm sure. Spell Pierce, whatever. You can still load your deck with 6, 7, 8, 9 counter. That's not that hard to do with, with good vintage playable counter spells. Now, you gain, you lose some equity because some of them get much worse in different matchups, right? You've got a Misdirection against Shops. That's pretty lousy. 
is there a card you could bring in out of the board that gets materially better when you fork it against shops? Buy force would, but that's a that's a heavy mana investment. But it could be that just having a free three two flasher against shops is actually good enough just for the creature I think we're combat implications. On this one, Kevin. Well, I see your point. I think this my ultimately my result is this is actually a little bit better than Luris, but my answer is going to be about the same. You lose a little bit too much in your deck construction by adding this for a decent benefit, but it's not. I would rather have three force of wills, three more force of wills in my deck than I think access to Me this too. creature. I I just think the fo- force of will is so central, so fundamental to the format that this. Yeah. Oh, and let's not forget you're losing three yeah. your preordains too. Yeah. Slightly easier to replace, I suppose, but still meaningful. Yes. I'm, Are you going to go zero, zero or one, no, zero. like you did with Luris? I, I mean, I think this card is actually zero? in okay. some sense better as a value proposition out of the gate, but I think the restriction is is more severe. So it's it's it, it pushes yeah. in different directions, but is more than offset in comparison to our first. That makes for interesting. Yeah, that makes for interesting conversation from a design standpoint. That's for sure. All right, we've got uh, we got one more companion to talk about at the moment, and that is Zerda, the Dawn Waker. Legendary creature, Elemental Fox. Zerda costs one Boros Boros. It's a 3-3. The companion condition is each permanent card in your starting deck has an activated ability. Each permanent, so it means your lands have to tap for something, at least mana. The ability is abilities you activate that aren't mana abilities cost two generic less to activate. This effect can't reduce the mana cost to less than one. It also has an activated ability, one in tap. Target creature can't block this turn. So here's the thing. <laughs> if you've got something that costs two or three or four generic mana in its activated ability, Zerda reduces those costs. And the go-to examples for this are Basalt Monolith and Grim Monolith. With Zerda and either of the monoliths in play, you have unbounded colorless mana. So this is functionally power artifact with relation to those particular artifacts. Well, and basically any artifact with an activated ability. Can't reduce it to zero, of course, which would generate a couple of combos that aren't really options. But you do have a quick and easy way to get to infinite mana. Basically, all you have to do is draw one of those monoliths and then be able to get Zerda into play for one Boros Boros. Are you there? Yeah. And the condition, yeah, the condition of having each permanent card in your starting deck have an activated ability is not that tricky in the sense if you consider that you're a heavy artifact-based ostensibly combo deck, right? It's not too hard to string together all your mana artifacts plus things like Voltaic Keys, plus things like Time Vault, plus Planeswalkers, like a couple derivations of Karn and other things. You do lose access, though, to continuous artifacts like lot components. You lose access to the Spheres and the Chalice and the Trinisphere, the Smokestack, that kind of thing, if you wanted to go that way. But it's worth noting that the condition right. only applies to permanents. So as we discussed before, if the only permanents of your deck are the Monoliths and other things that make mana, and the rest of your deck is Paradoxical Outcome and Force of Wills, then... It's actually trivially, trivially easy it's to It's kind of hard condition. to have a kind of on-the-fly discussion about this. I think you really need to do to do some work to figure out, seriously, to come up with draft <laughs> a list of permanents that have activated abilities and then begin figuring out, you know, can you actually, do you have enough material there to, to actually build yeah. a deck around it? I suspect the... I'm with you, but I do think we have a ready-made example in Paradoxical Outcome. With what? You basically lose access to Lavinia and Mentor. And, and Snapcaster made. Yeah, so you lose your creature base, at least the modern creature base. But the engine of the deck remains, and you gain access to infinite combos. Yeah, but, but Xerox, it, the whole point of Xerox is that it's a homogenous mess, right? Like, oh, no, P.O. No, no, I'm talking about P.O. Yeah. I'm talking about P.O. 
Yeah. Interesting. Um, so losing access to the creatures so is highly PO, relevant. Don't get me wrong. You get to play top for free, but you get to yeah, keep your planeswalkers. You don't get to play it for free. It's just right. the activation of the ability. Um, look, the way to break this card is is when you when you can <laughs> bring Grim Monolith and Basalt Monolith down to down to a nub. Right. That's how you break this open. Mm-hmm. And we had models for that last year. You know, it's, it's highly ironic that the, the all the engine cards that were printed in the last couple of years have activated but, abilities. But, uh, Experimental Frenzy, Bolas's Citadel, and Mystic Forge right, they do. all have activated they abilities. They've they've been making more and more effective. Which is weird. Well, I think they're just trying to they're trying to give a little bit more value everywhere, right? I mean, this wouldn't have an activated mm-hmm. ability itself if it didn't have that last <laughs> last bit, <laughs> which is basically tacked <laughs> on know. to give it an activated ability. So here's the thing. Here's the thing, Kevin. Let's start mm-hmm. with just busting the game open, right? Playing this in Grim Monolith is a two-card infinite mana engine. You don't even need Voltaic Key. Yeah. So let's just start with a deck yeah. that has one of these in the sideboard and, say, four Grim Monolith. What can we do? What mm-hmm. can we do? Well, you're still going to play the things that Grim Monolith did well last year, right? You're going to play Mystic Forge and you're going to play Karn because both of those are self-enabling things, especially if you've got infinite mana, okay. right? So that's something. You're going to play so Walking So you're building Ballista, a shop deck. We need to be able to right? cast this, though. Uh, you're, everything is colorless mm, so not far. Not necessarily. <laughs> well, yeah, but we started sure. the... I mean, y- but it's a little disingenuous when you started you're, the whole thing right. with no, we're going to have walking infinite colorless mana. Walking Ballista <laughs> probably is the best win condition for infinite mana. You're right. It's it's the yeah. best sync. Exactly. And and it's, again, we, need, we, we did not get bent around the fact that... Y- you can legitimately build this deck so that's the only thing that has activated abilities is Grim Monolith, right? Yeah. You can just be playing Grixis Thieves plus this and Grim Monolith. Yeah. You could be playing. You could right. be playing Xerox. Not oh, Xer- sorry. You, sorry, you lose access but to the Xerox creatures. Fade. Sorry, you can't be playing Thieves because you lose. You, you lose but access you, you, to Notion you can Thieves. Play too. Sorry, bad example. You can bad play uh, all the cantrips. Mm-hmm. You can play all the blue draw. Right. Mm-hmm. F- Force of Will. You can play Tinker right. for Citadel still. Then. And you can play all the top tricks. You can play, I don't know, you can play Bomberman, too. that's too. exciting. Uh, but you can't play Trinket Mage. That's that's kind of rough. But you can still play Bomberman. Yeah. yeah, wow. Bomberman becomes insane. Infinite mana with Bomberman is is game over with the bomb, a spell bomb. That is, that's yeah. intriguing. Yeah, with access to this, Bomberman starts to look a little bit more like Painter, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah. a, it's two different combo <laughs> decks in one. Wow. Then uh, the trick is going to be finding the you can't use Trinket Mage, so you need some other tutoring effect. Um, planar Portal. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I, I am with you in your sentiment from a few minutes ago. It's super hard to evaluate these just well, off no, the cuff, we got- right? Because the listing of things that are included and excluded is yeah. non-obvious. <laughs> well, we took it pretty far, actually. Right? We took it pretty far. There's yeah. a lot going on here, and the fact that Grim Monolith is unrestricted you don't, you makes, don't even, means you a lot theoretically to me in this, eight, in this right? example. I mean, you could run... Yeah, you could run Basalt well, and Grim yeah. if, if you wanted. Basalt definitely pushes you more toward yeah. workshops, I'll grant, but but that's not a deal breaker by any stretch. I know it's hard to have a workshop-based deck that has access right. to Boros Boros right. on the second turn, but again, you, you can go through Mox Opal and, and theoretically get a yeah. lot of the way there. Boy, the, if you were to, if you want to design this card to make it as easy as possible to combo out, and you had to have you had to have a hybrid color, double hybrid color, what would, should the colors be? Yeah, as easy as possible. As easy to cast. as possible? Well, yeah, there'd be is it, right? Yeah. Yes, you could ritual it out faster if it was Demir, but is it the color combo you True, want? That's a good point. Anymore. But Boros is not terrible, right? No. I mean, it's not that white and red are usually secondary or tertiary colors for lots of decks. So, yeah. 
you, the only thing you're really losing access to is academy in terms of helping you cast this and you arguably may not be an academy deck depending on how the deck is built right you could just be an ancient tomb deck that otherwise has a xerox style mana base or a, a po style mana base is what i should have said so i don't know how if you've seen uh various um uh grim monolith based po decks in the last couple of years but i've seen them my friend aaron lately uh, locally true, has played them true, a handful that's of a times. Good point and that deck was that deck was a karn deck yeah. frequently but it also can be an Urza deck. And so you asked what you're doing with this. Look at Urza, Lord High Artificer. Okay. I found a Bomberman deck that top-aided a tournament this year. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, th- this deck has yep. one Oriac Salvagers, one Mentor, and four Trinket Mage. And then it has Teferi, Time Reveler, is its permanence, Pithy Needle, Nihil Spellbomb, yep. Narset, Sensei's Divining Top, Jace the Mind Sculptor, and Engineer Explosive. So half of those have to be just pulled out immediately. The other half... you. What you? I, I I heard trinket mage and mentor. What else has to go? I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I heard trinket the, mage and mentor that would have to come out of that. Uh, what else needle, has to go? Which you wouldn't play anyway because of trinket ah, yes. mage. And you have to reconfigure the sideboard. Yeah. Bit. But most of this still still yeah. stands. I mean, you would just. I mean, <laughs> the fact the fact that this condition by definition includes yes. planeswalkers, yes. I think is really nice from a deck construction standpoint because then you can use what that deck has. You got Teferi, you got Dak, you got Narset. You, would, you probably really wouldn't helps. run more than one or two Grim Monolith in this scenario, though, because you already have infinite mana condition with Lotus and Salvagers. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's hard to say. I mean, the, the best version of this deck would be doing something else, else productive with Grim Monolith, right? That's why I went yeah. initially to Karn and Mystic <laughs> yeah, Forge. right. Because if you can make this Zerda just kind of an incidental part, that's even better. I mean, infinite mana is very powerful. I'm starting to think that a PO variant that has access to Urza and oh, a Karn. because then you could get the Ballista out of the sideboard Might be the way to Karn. go here. Yeah. Well, and, or if you land Urza, yeah, you just, play, right. you just Ooh, put your whole deck into play. That's interesting. So, Kevin, speaking of Urza, uh, at the time of this recording, the most recent Vintage Challenge winner was an Urza deck. And the... the oh, that's... That's right, the I'm looking at it now. Were, I'll read them. They were Ur- four Urza, three Psy Mastothopterist, which of course has activated ability, and then three Planeswalkers. Yeah. So this deck... You're right, this deck no, doesn't need to change it, it at all. Well, you you would probably add, you know... Uh, you would add a Ballista in the board and in the main, probably, and then you would add Monoliths, but otherwise, yeah. you just don't have to do much. You could cut some, You could cut Sahili, for example. Yeah, you're, you're basically there. I don't think already. you would need her. Or you could cut one of the size or something, yeah. Bonkers. Yeah, you're right. So the de- <laughs> that's really interesting. So the deck that just won the challenge already satisfies the companion condition by <laughs> definition. And then you can just use the infinite mana with Urza and to draw your whole deck. Absurd. Uh, absurd. Yeah. Good <laughs> that's <grief>. awesome. <laughs> and Good you're grief. already in red, so, well, not really. The mana base doesn't have any red. Ex- it's the opal that generates the red, <laughs> the white. Yeah. Yeah, but but you could easily be in red. This deck this deck has three underground seas in order to cast Vampiric Tutor. What? Fatal push and Yeah. Vamp and Demonic. Yeah. And Yogwell. Okay, so it's got a fair bit of black. And more pushes in the sideboard, but otherwise <clears throat> the mana could obviously be. Let me look adapted. and see what's in the sideboard. The sideboard has uh that's funny. You has a Blightsteel Colossus, which is obviously not activated. Has a Mycosynth Lattice, which is not activated yep. in Grafdigger's Cage, but has Tormont's Crypt. Oh, that's really interesting. Wow, the interaction between Karn and Companion means you can violate yeah, the Companion offload rule. Offload your non-activated abilities to the sideboard and still have access to them. <sighs> In- wow. Absurd. 
so it doesn't help you with Colossus, obviously, yeah. that has to be in the deck to make it work, but it For helps sure. with Lycosynth Lattice, and it would work yeah. with a few other things, too. Wow, <laughs> how interesting. that We already have a deck that both fits this companion in, wants it, and already knows how to break the rules. <laughs> Yeah, you can like you can have access to something that otherwise would not work even in game one. You could bring in a pithing needle yep. out of your sideboard yep. or a graph digger's cave. Wow. Now you now the opportunity cost is not zero here though because you look at this sideboard. It's filled with cage and needle and well colossus. So it's just cage and needle, right? Those effects would have Kevin, to change to something else. You if could you wanted still to keep the companion. get you could so correct me if I'm wrong, but you could. In game two, let's say you wanted to bring in a bunch of non-activated ability permanents like Pithy Needles and Cages, you could still mm-hmm. just sideboard in yep. this card and use it. Or just leave it in your sideboard and way, not make I'm it your like companion. You could, yeah, that's totally that's possible. What I'm saying is you could bring it in and just not make it your companion and just hard cast it once you found it. That uh, That's true too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You could just have it in your deck. Yeah. Or you could switch the cards. Like you could switch Needles into something else. You could switch Cages into more Crypts or whatever and just keep this card as your companion. Or, oh, you want to know something funny? You could switch companion. <laughs> <laughs> you could have a deck that also used Luris. No, you can't. You're, you're pretty far away from being able to use Luris in this deck. But comically, you could, to your point early on in the mechanics discussion, actually switch companion. Yeah, this is really interesting. It's, I'm, I'm not saying that, that this companion suddenly makes this the best deck in Vintage, necessarily, but it's a pretty strong mark in Zerda's favor here that the, the deck that just won the challenge wants to I play with it. this is the best one we've seen so far yeah I, I think from a vintage standpoint that this is the most powerful campaign so do you think this is all upside here we lose a sideboard slot i think for the decks that can use this the sideboard slot is not is is not the value like it's not this is not going to be like a super grindy deck <laughs> you know it's it's going to be a little bit That's more true. bombastic so yeah. the sideboard space is not quite as valuable or important as it would be for like a deck that needs like 20 sideboard cards so i'm, I'm on board with this yeah yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. So suffice it to say, this style of deck is definitely one option. There's probably a few other ways you can build monolith-focused decks that might be Urza, they might be PO, but either way, there's a lot of the common components here. I think Karn the Great Creator is a common component, and I think that there's a lot of things that you can just port over from existing decks like Key Vault and Tinker for Colossus, uh, sorry, Tinker for Citadel, that don't need to be adjusted in any way. Is there anything we're missing? There's not any other non-mana abilities here, right? All the lands have activated abilities. You know, it's ironic. You can't play Urborg in a Zerda deck. You can't play it. Because Urborg isn't a swamp, and therefore it does not have an activated ability when it's not in play. I don't know if you knew that. Wow. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. Ur- Urborg is a really interesting case because it's the best swamp there right. is, right? <laughs> in one sense. But it is not a swamp and therefore violates Zerda's deck construction yeah, rules. I- because it doesn't have an activated ability. I would not have, um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so for all of you out there who are thinking about building with Zerda, uh, don't put Urborg in your deck. At least don't try to do it and then make Zerda your companion, because that would be illegal. Uh, Similarly, the Tabernacle at Pendril Vale is illegal with Zerda. That's a permanent that doesn't have an activated ability. Acceptable loss. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I would argue you're right. So we've talked a lot here. Shall we try to estimate Zerda's play at this point? The play is going to be small. We know that. Yeah. There are controls in place, I think, enough so that a multicolor Grim Monolith-based deck can't really run rampant in the format. And also, plenty of people who just want to play something like PO, where you could tune your deck and change it to more like this Urza list, are just not going to want to anyway. So there's plenty of people that could maybe adopt Zerda that will choose not to anyway. 
I think that the play is still going to be below 10. I think we're still talking single digits. It's funny, we haven't encountered anything that I can think of in the history of Magic that has made deck construction this much harder. What do you mean by that? Right? I just mean it's just an additional layer above and beyond all the other requirements of the format. And you add on all the strategic complexity of the implication. I know you alluded to the ways that these cards are unprecedented in our mechanics discussion, but it's it's really coming to bear as we try to evaluate. Well, I mean, look, a lot of things make deck construction difficult. You know, things that have unusual or extreme mana costs, things that, you know, um, have extreme conditionality like this. We've talked about that kind of thing before. You know, often... What, hold, hold on, though. What what has extreme conditionality like this, though, where every permanent well, in your starting deck has to have well, an activated no, ability? This is probably among the more extreme, but we've talked about in the past... That I, I wrote a whole article five, six, seven years ago about kind of extreme conditionality. You know, what rather design and vintage. And one of the things I talked about was extreme conditionality. So there are things like, you know... Yeah, but that was that was like that was strategic though. That was what how a true. thing is useful in true. game, right? But this this is just another layer, totally because this has this has conditionality no, in game, the likes of which you're talking about, plus a whole layer of pre-game preparation that doesn't exist with those I, I other agree. cards. I agree. It's, it's fascinating. So, well, anyway, I'm gonna go. I think I'm gonna go low single digits on Zerda. I'm gonna go. Yeah. It, it it just can't I'm be just that much. I'm just going to go two if that makes you. I'm going to go three. You. Okay, you're you're above me. I guess I'm inadvertently <laughs> taking the over then. <laughs> but see, it shows that you and I are on a very similar page there. Let's move on and talk about one sprite dragon. This is a two mana dragon, red blue creature fairy dragon. It's a one one. It has flying and haste. And whenever you cast a non creature spell, put a plus one plus one counter on sprite dragon. Seems, Steve, that we're it's we're destined to review all of the you know growing creatures laterally or yes. horizontally, right? But um, this one is noteworthy, I think, because it's precursor from a standpoint of creatures. That is the Storm Chaser Mage, similar creature, one three flying haste for the same mana cost with prowess. So apparently, I mean not entirely, but uh, apparently, <laughs> this creature is superior to Storm Chaser Mage. It has a it has one toughness instead of three, but putting a counter on instead of Pryos is is just better all the way around. So I think that Sprite Dragon is an improvement to a card that I personally have seen play in Vintage in my area. My friend Mike Rogers has played Storm Chaser Mage in a, a red blue Delver kind of shell, and this one I think is an improvement on that. But at the same time, it's not widely played that Storm Chaser Mage. So Kevin, I assume that you like the permanent growth much better than the Prowess Trigger, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that it's an improvement, even though the creature is ostensibly a little more vulnerable to Lightning Bolt and I guess Ren and Six initially, but over time Maybe. it represents more damage. Yeah. So I have a diff. I, I couldn't resist reaching for my gush book and opening <laughs> a chapter five where I have a a kind of descriptive list of of these uh, types of cards, these horizontally growing tempo finishers. Um, and I actually have a table <laughs> on page 98, table 5.1, Tempo Finishers, <laughs> that's Mentor, Young Pyromancer, Delver, Thing in the Ice, Menagorger, Hydra, Myth Realize, Vendillion, Click. Uh, Click is not a growing creature, but it's it's on the list of Tempo Finishers. And then there's you know other ones that didn't quite make the, the good list here, Kevin, which mm-hmm. were uh, Seeker of the Way, Niv Magus Elemental, uh, Psychotog Grows, Kiln Fiend. That was a fun one. Yep. <laughs> you might recall. Just from this list, though. Well, and you, is, you, you is haven't Niv, said is, the the classic one though, the OG. Oh, well, well, yeah, I haven't going backwards, man. Okay, I'm not there yet. Uh, <laughs> and of course, Quirion Dryad and, and Tarmogoyf. There you go. Yeah, 
this is so I actually forget what Niv Mag- Mag- Magus Elemental does. It says here it exiles spells from the stack. It's not very good. Okay, yeah, it's not a not a growing. But um, so so Queer and Dryad obviously triggers whenever you play a a, not, a, a red, blue, white, or black spell. Mm-hmm. So its scope is is fairly similar to this. Of course, this triggers on artifacts and green spells. Yeah. Um, but it won't trigger on creatures. It has haste, and you get permanent counters. And Kevin, it's it's really in the most natural set of colors for Xerox decks these days. Mm-hmm. Agree, right? I mean, Xerox decks back in the day made have might have been you know blue green or blue white or blue green white, but this is really the sweet spot for Xerox in contemporary vintage. I don't know about legacy um, because you can splash whatever you know. It, really, going back, I'd say the last even before Monastery Mentor was printed, right? I mean, remember? I think. I think it was the summer before, might have been the summer after, but there was a summer where Grixis Xerox was really popular for a couple of months. Yeah. One season two of the VSL. Um, and that was, you're talking about a young Pyromancer, Cobble Therapy kind of build. Right. Yeah. And then the summer before that, when DAC was printed, of course, Xerox shifted dramatically into blue-red, but it already bit, I mean, Delver had already been blue-red. Naturally. <laughs> yep. You know, and it was blue-red-green, it was rug before that. So this is, is this interesting because it fits so squarely into Xerox potentialities, right? You can mm-hmm. play it in Rug, you can play it in Jeskai, you can play it in Grixis. Basically, any configuration, known contemporary configuration of Xerox, bracketing, you know, Grow and Super Grow variants from right. 15 uh, years ago, it's, and, and it's there. To put it another way, there hasn't been a, a contemporary version of, of Xerox in the last, I don't know, five to ten years, I don't know the real timeline, but a long time that hasn't had Red. Right. Yeah. Red has been, it's hard to, I mean, so it's, that's. I think that's true. I mean, you could Depends precisely on how you define it, right? If you define <laughs> Xerox in terms of like Doomsday, then maybe. But it, I think if you define it in terms of um, tempo, agro control, base, strategic orientation, tempo threats, tempo mm-hmm. finishers, I think you're right. I, I think that's a that is a correct statement. I just wanted to say though that that you know for the first 15 years of Xerox, or at least first 10 years of Xerox, I would say from Let's say Query and Dryad all the way to Young Pyromancer. The standard efficiency was either one or two mana, and as we all know, gold is not exactly two, right? I mean, it's right. it's it's somewhere between two and three mana, um, <laughs> <laughs> and so the the price is a little bit steeper. Now that trade off has been found to be more than worth it in the case of Monastery Mentor, but Monastery Mentor is sort of an exceptional case in that it gives you explosive exponential growth. One could arguably say that that trade-off has been found to be worth it in the case of Menagorge or Hydra as well, but that also provides built-in evasion, which this does as well, by the way. Oh yeah. Um, so it's hard. It's hard to say. I mean, right? The this is kind of a classic example of new but similar to existing, situationally better, situationally worse than existing options. Now, the one thing that I would say is that there was a paradigm shift in this arc in in the in the Xerox archetype with Young Pyromancer. Which was that there was a realization that distributed horizontal growth was simply superior to the vertical growth model. Yeah. And especially given the prevalence and increase, you know, with planeswalkers arrived a larger than recently, you, you know, recent, larger than normal amount of <laughs> spot and board removal, right? I mean, I, the reason I'm trying to carefully qualify my words here is because if you go back to 1994, 1995, 1995, there's lots of removal. Source yeah. of plowshares and disenchants are everywhere. Yeah. But, Lightning Bolt was basically tactic non grata 
in 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 vintage until Planeswalkers. That isn't to say it was entirely absent, but yeah. it was very lightly played. If you were yeah, if you were to go back and look at the query and dryad psychotog kind of era, there was very little spot removal played in vintage. And and yeah, I mean, and eras before, during, and after that, yeah. Source to plowshares didn't even see play. Now yeah. that was partly a byproduct of the fact that white was so bad. So, so bad. Yeah, I mean, so bad. Yeah, but th- that tells you something that, like, I, I mean, <laughs> when people the best barely. Re- yeah, <laughs> when the best removal spell of all time is not good in vintage, there's something wrong with white. <laughs> right, and that was I the mean, case pe- for a long time. Yeah, let alone Lightning Bolt, which yeah. is just, I mean, got a major upgrade when the first Planeswalkers became, like, Jace the Mind Sculptor became a. Yeah, a, a playable card. And Lightning Bolt would have been a fine card back in the Juggernaut days. Right. But we've traveled so far down the route of efficient, useful, good removal. I mean, this isn't just a format where Lightning Bolt and, and Sword Sea play. It's a format where you have cards like, I don't know, Abrupt Decay, Assassin's Dismember. Trophy, Dismember. Yeah. Uh, there are other ones besides Fatal that Fatal Push. Fatal Push in the sideboard. There's yeah. even more. I mean, there's lots. Yeah. You know, there's, uh, they're all over the place. So, um, in that environment, and then there's of course you know planeswalkers that can pick off things like um, uh, what's your fa- that favorite planeswalker, the two mana one you love, so <laughs> Renin Six. Yeah, Renin Six. You know um, all kinds of you know things that can do removal. So and then in an environment where you have basically three to four main back main deck pyroblasts in in essentially half the blue decks, <laughs> it makes it makes horizontal growth uh, much much more valuable. And vertical growth, much more of a liability. And so, I would like to add, in addition to everything you just said, that being a blue permanence is a serious liability in the current vintage metagame. Huge. I mean, that's the. I mean, we talked about like I mentioned, myth realized, right? As a point of comparison, so much more uh, invulnerable, right? It's it's just yeah. harder to to deal with now. It's of course in, in some sense more cost intensive. Now, the yeah, other thing, this, though, I just I, to that point, I mean, this card would be a better vintage card if it didn't have blue in its mana cost if it was red white or red green right it would be probably more playable if it didn't have blue in its mana cost that's an interesting supposition i don't know if that's true i think there are reasons to think that's true (laughs) obviously blue still adds other value naturally right but yeah i just think the force of negation force of will misdirection but also also i think the challenge is that because so so there's the cuts in two directions, right? I mean, your point is really well taken. Being vulnerable to pyroblast is an enormous liability. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, on the other hand, being just in blue and red, which are the first and second colors in all all the Xerox decks, does make it easier to cast in a larger range of Xerox possible strategies. That's a fair point. Pa- That's past, right. present, and future. Yeah, if this was white or green, it would obviously pigeonhole it into those kind of archetypes. And right. similar to your point, at blue red, it means you can fetch a basic basic island and cast this more reliably against shops. So. Right. Yeah. But the other thing I wanted to get, I wanted to get back to something I said earlier and then got a little bit off track on, which is that part of the value on Young Pyromancer and part of the value on Query and Dryad, especially Query and Dryad, is that you can drop it on turn one and then begin disrupting your opponent the rest of the game. So it works a little bit like an inverse, picture it like an inverse Tendrils of Agony, where Tendrils of Agony is the final card you play after a preceding sequence of spells. Query and Dryad is, is most frequently the first card you want to play. Mm-hmm. And this has that same function, right? Because the more spells that you play after it, the more value you get out of playing spell, the more value you get out of this card. Yeah. And so you're really incentivized to play it as quickly as possible. Yet the mana cost makes it difficult to play it as quickly as possible. <laughs> Naturally. Um, and so, and so it's not a turn one play, you know, very rarely. Um, and it's likely a turn two play, I, I suppose, but, but you know, there is a tension. I mean, I, 
I have noticed that a lot of the Xerox decks of late, Kevin, do not run off-color Moxon. That was not true back in the day. Now, that wasn't true often during the Mentor, when Mentor was not restricted. Yep. And it wasn't true prior to, like, you know, the young Pyromancer day, right? Right. The Xerox decks used to play four or five Moxon. Right, because the early threats happened to have colorless mana in their mana cost. Right, like Quirion Dryad or even Ophidian in the earliest versions. Back to Tog, yep. Yep, Psychotog. Um, Oh, and and you were playing more three-mana spells, too, back in those days. Intuition, right? Cunning Wish. Yeah. Yeah. Today, they don't, they really don't. Um, it's, 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 so it's possible that, you know, despite playing Narset and Dak, you're, you're like, you just don't see a lot of Xerox decks with off-color Moxon these days. Right. You no, know, even, even with Jace the Mindscope, uh, Jace Vrinch Prodigy didn't see a lot of that. I no. did. I, the, the, that guy got second place at the NYSE had four, if not five, I think it had all five Moxon. I was running mentors and JVPs. So the point is that, well, it really cuts in multiple directions, right? It's it's like, on the one hand, this is not the kind of archetypal, like, squeeze into play early and then watch it grow, you know, over time play, because it's a little bit more pricey. But on the other hand, it's not like it would be a turn one play reliably, even if you, if it was, say, I don't know, blue one instead, because these decks don't have a lot of random colorless or generic mana to throw around. So, yeah. so, I mean, they're basic, Pyromancer is basically like a turn two or later play anyway, these days. So I, I don't, I think on the other, look, here's where this really comes down for me. Let's put aside its vulnerability to spot removal. Let's put aside its, its slow, relative slowness. I think the question is, the fundamental question is, is single spell one power increment really good enough anymore? If it's not distributed. I don't even know if Young Pyromancer is good enough as a card, honestly. Honestly. Like, I I have played some Xerox in the last couple of years. I have not played Young Pyromancer in probably more than two years, Kevin. <laughs> probably. I'm serious. Maybe even longer. Well, it, it and might... And it was a card I was the hugest booster of when it came out. <laughs> I know. It might not be a standard for you, but Young Pyromancer is still played frequently as a one-of in a supporting role in decks like Jeskai. It's, it's not universal by any stretch. But it is still, I consider, widely played. And using the metrics that we use for our tournament guidelines, so 32 players or more, Young Pyromancer has still made about, year to date, has still made about, I don't know, it looks like 30, 40, maybe top eights. So it's well, still it's still actively a vintage card. So let me just say a couple of other things about that. One of the reasons that it's lost a lot of them is because you still have one mentor, right? So there's... It competes. It, it that's filling this a similar role. The second thing oh, is, sure. I think it's important about Pyromancer is that Pyroman there are an in, enormous amount of com, com, competitive options at that mana slot, like Dreadhorde Arcanist. Right? It's just, I mean, I have no doubt that Dreadhorde Arcanist dwarfs Pyromancer's play. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I'm completely and then with also, you. and then there's Lavinia and Snapcaster Mage and JVP. You know, it all is all kind of creature based <laughs> options. Not to mention. You know, the lower tier options like Vendillion Click and so on and so forth. But here's what I'm getting at. Clearly, horizontal growth is better than vertical growth, right? Yeah. I'm not even sure that the premier unrestricted horizontal, really the, uh, no, the original distributed growth generator is even a, a top tier tempo thread in Xerox. If that's true, that it's basically a marginal option. And I think that's a, that's a fair statement. Then to what extent is a vertical growth option even you know, viable, right? I mean, that's the problem is that, so I want to put, I want to make this really clear, right? What I'm saying is I don't know 
if you could design a vertical growth option that grows in one power increments, that is good enough. And and then now, the ex- one obvious exception is Metagorgia Hydra, which sees play. But one of the reasons it sees play, I think, in in the POs, it doesn't really see play in Xerox anymore. It sees play as a cyborg tactic for PO because it's so explosive, right? Yeah. One of the key differences between Metagorgia Hydra and this is, so in some sense, Metagorgia Hydra doesn't really just grow in one one counter increments. It does technically, but because <laughs> it counts all players, its growth is almost double that of of these these asymmetric growth creatures. So what I'm getting at is, theoretically speaking. If you want to design a vertical growth Xerox utilization, utilized tempo threat for vintage, Kevin, how powerful would you have to make it? <laughs> and I'm positing, I'm positing specifically in terms of what are the increments of growth. I'm positing that it would have to be probably more than this. That's what I'm getting at. And I think it would yeah. have to be resemble something more like Kiln Fiend and on a permanent basis. Yeah. Well. I think there's a lot of levers you can pull from a design standpoint, but to your point, I think if you doubled the amount of counters that this got per spell, we might be talking, but even then, it's still questionable just because of the way the Xerox decks are structured today and all the reasons you just cited, which I won't repeat. The the Xerox decks today have a significant control element. There's a lot of reactive elements, right? Yeah. Um, back in the day, they had more cantrips. They had more, just more proactive True. spells. And now we've got things like restricted Narset, so you can't load up on those. And yes, you could construct a deck that had low counters, but they have relatively high counter uh, components right now, too. And as you already said, they have fewer Moxins. So there's just less incidental growth here from non-creature spells that can be proactive. So even at two counters per spell, hypothetically, this thing still might not even be good enough. It might have to be three. Now, yeah. now I want to I want to say one of the reasons that Managorda Hydra also sees play in PO sideboards occasionally is because your opponents will be sideboarding out most of their creature removal, mm-hmm. and then the Managorda Hydra can come in and clean up. And then PO has such explosive spell uh, density with PO and the Moxin that you can basically make it lethal instantaneously. Yeah, but here to me I- is the real. Go ahead. Hydra is just a confluence of good qualities. Not blue, grows on everything. Right. Uh, synergistic with PO itself. So if you, even if you don't go off your mana, uh, you, your box and pump it, it's, you it's easy to dodge lightning bolt. Yeah. Right. You need a dedicated creature removal spell. Oh, and it has trample. It. And it has trample, yes, which is highly evasion. relevant. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, anyway, go on. I, the, you, well, the key point you're making is that it has, you need dedicated creature removal, not yes. incidental spot removal to deal with it. Yes. And, agreed. And that, Puts, that allows PO to put pressure in multiple ways on the opponent. But here's what I'm getting at. There's one wrinkle here that I think may save this card, <laughs> and it's the haste function. Because having haste means that it, it really means several things. Number one, it means that you can attack a planeswalker and kill a planeswalker the same turn you play it, which is is really significant, as we've seen in the past. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the whole reason that Slash Panther even saw play in Vintage, <laughs> yep. right? The second point is that in a in a POS type deck, I would seriously consider playing this in in the function that you have for Metagorder Hydra because you don't need a time walk. Mm-hmm. You Good can point. just yeah, you can just swing and win. So I think it's the haste is what makes this really intriguing here. Now you already said a lot of the good cantrips, a lot of the good free spells are are like Gush, Gataxian Probe, Brainstorm, Ponder. They're all restricted. Right? Granted, granted, but if you play this on turn two. And and obviously it's going to be harder even to protect it now that mental misstep is restricted. 
Mm-hmm. So there's that. <laughs> um, but if you can protect it, um, you can attack immediately. You can potentially play even another spell. And then I'd, I'd say that you could probably, I don't know, pr- that, protecting it is the biggest caveat, I think. That's the, that's the trickiest spot. Right. But, but, you, but here's my point. Here's my point. One of the advantages of distributed growth is that even if they pick off the, you know, the men, the mentor, you still have a monk or two. Well, with haste, you can still pick off a planeswalker, Kevin, mm-hmm. you know, and then they can remove it and it's done. It, I don't know if it's done its job, but it's done a job. It's performed a service of some sort. Yeah. I, I, you make a fair point at the same time. There's not too many planeswalkers that this is going to kill without a lot of work. Obviously, it's not hard to kill a Narset on one, right? That's, that's a grieving. It's not that easy to kill a Renin 6 on 4 or an Oko on 6 with this card to turn it plays. Even with a Lightning yeah. Bolt, you, you need this plus Lightning Bolt to take down Renin 6. And even Bolt, this doesn't kill Oko but, on 6. So but, your but point Oko's is well defenses, made. But Oko's defenses won't be as effective because this has flying. Well, so Just want to note that. That's what? a good point. And also Oko's disruptive ability is actually not very good against this because if you get a counter on it your elk is bigger <laughs> so that's actually kind of ah, nice but yeah. uh and that's a thing that mana gorger hydra has also is that oko is no good against it. it it oko makes it worse it removes the trample but makes it three bigger anyway so i think there's a give and take to what you're saying it's pretty hard actually to kill an average planeswalker with this creature even with a spell or two it's hard to it's you, you can't even kill a dac right sans bolt you would need three other spells to kill a deck that just went to four the turn they played it. So haste has some That's value. A very good point. But yeah. it's not going to be killing planeswalkers in the modern era as much as you make it sound. That's true. Pressuring them it's base, absolutely. It's, it's base power and toughness just makes that hard. If it was set at two, then I think we you would yeah. be a, you know if it was two one, then I think we'd be having a different combo here. Yeah. Because then you could I mean here, think that three is really the critical number. Yes. Because three is what gets you to a, uh, a Narset that's been activated once, uh, a Dak Faden that's coming to, you know, uh, that goes to four the turn you play him. But. Right. But, but my point is that once you, if you can attack, you know, for two power, then they can't even activate their Dak, stealing your artifact. Then they have yeah. to start ticking yeah. up and you win that race more quickly. Um, and we should say that pressuring a planeswalker that doesn't die from the attack is still valuable. That's partly what I was implying. Yeah. Yes. And that goes for Oko and Renin Six as well. Like Oko and Renin Six are so they're so high loyalty for their cost that just slowing them down toward their ultimate or their better effects is is valuable. Right. And haste helps there. I do think that haste is given the constraints on mana that we talked about. If you're talking about a Xerox context, haste is not very well maximized on this card, right? Many times you're going to play this and be swinging for exactly one, <laughs> and that's not well, that's inherently bad. Something. It's just no, you, yeah, yeah. you just you're not maximizing haste in that sense. I, the I, PO I example that you gave definitely makes better use of haste. It's potentially really exciting, actually. <laughs> yeah, but to be perfectly honest, PO is such a bigger mana deck that I'm still feeling like Mana Gorger, Hydra, and Mentor are just far and away the better cards for that role. I just. Unless you really don't want to be well, in another color, green or white, which there's reasons for that, I just can't imagine this taking over for either of those creatures. Well, mentor is a given. That's that yeah. slot is is locked in stone. And the only reason you wouldn't but, have mentor is if you, for some reason, were just strongly avoiding white, which no one has done lately. Well, well okay, strike that. Strike that. There are rug PO lists from champs. 
and and about that time frame that would have played this over mentor but that's not my point but so i think there the, the critical thing i was trying to get at is this does have an advantage over menagorge or hydra situationally the, better yeah well no i yes and certainly but it also has a tactical advantage which is that if you're in a po matchup where planeswalkers are really relevant like you're facing oath or you're facing a po mirror mm-hmm. you know this card can become your ace in the hole where Managorger Hydra is more a, a tactic to distribute your threats, you know, to, to distribute your strategic objectives in a way that your opponent can't stop everything. Mm-hmm. This card adds another layer to that. Yeah. Right. And that, I don't know how useful that is. I don't play PO enough to know that. Um, but so I don't think it's competing for Monastery and Mentor. What I think it's competing for is perhaps the Managorger Hydra sideboard strategy, where instead of having like four Managorger Hydras, you might have like, I don't know, one or two of these. Yeah. And you, and you just, you, you use it for Managorja Hydra's function, but also with the additional utility of being basically a, a tool to pick off planeswalkers. Yeah. So it might, it, it, it might be the case that this card actually sees play outside of Xerox more than it sees play inside Xerox for the reasons that we've just gone through. Yeah. I'm starting to feel that way as well. At the same time, I just feel like the community at large is probably going to shy away from this very strongly because at face value it dies to bolt and pyroblast <laughs> and it even dies to ren and six honestly like yes it won't always die that way but it's just being a one one to start with is just a one one blue creature is such a liability right now and it's real hard to grow this out of range of lightning bolt right you'd have to play three spells before it does it, yeah I, I'm, I'm sorry to jump straight to the conclusion on this point but i just can't imagine people picking this up test maybe Maybe there's a Rogue Delver kind of build that would t- catch some people by surprise, yeah. but I just think that, that modern decks, the Renin 6 decks, and the modern removal that's played right now is already geared to just stop this inherently. I also wonder, though, I, so I wonder if this could be plucked out of a, a sideboard where you really wouldn't see creatures coming, like a Doomsday sideboard. <laughs> you know, not just PO, right? Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think that this has potential. I really do. It yeah. also it also could just go lethal in in an underworld breach deck as a finisher in a way that again because it has time walk built in is not going to replace mentor either you're not playing white because you're playing grixis or you don't want to have to find the time walk right I mean it's like the the old days when we play queer and dryad and you get it to ten and then you have to tutor up the time walk post will well you don't have to do that with this right you can use the underworld breach just to fuel it and then bam swing in and so yeah. your opponents tap down you don't have to worry about them untapping and then dealing with it and there was a grixis breach deck in the finals of it got second place in the last challenge that fits the description you're talking about right very xeroxy although with lion's eye diamond <laughs> yeah well let's i think it's time to get to our predictions on this one and for as much as we talked about this i just don't think it fits in the contemporary metagame i'm going to go zero I'm going to say one because I think it'll pop up in a sideboard somewhere. All right. Cool. Look forward to it. I'll say non zero and then I'll make my prediction one. (laughs) Price is right. Here we come. All right. Let's move on to one heartless act. One B, instant. Choose one. Destroy target creature with no counters on it or remove up to three counters from target creature. I like this modal spell. I think from a vintage context, it makes a, it makes a lot, a lot of sense. And obviously, there's some tension with creatures that have counters on them. And we just mentioned, for example, Managorger Hydra. This is pretty bad at removing a Managorger Hydra. In fact, it, it never will remove a Managorger Hydra, really. Um, but 
Manigrader Hydra notwithstanding, this actually does a pretty darn good job against most of the rest of the metagame. You might cite workshops as an example of something where this would be weak, and I would agree with you. In certain cases where Ravager is involved, it is pretty, it could underperform, but not always. <laughs> there are several situations that involve a, a walking ballista or a Ravager where this would still just be removal. Because it's and, instant. Yeah, well, and also it removes three counters, so you'd have to have a 4-4 a four, four Ravager still to survive this. And you know what's interesting, too, is that this is not, in the case of Ravager and Ballista, it's not straight-up removal. It's removing the counters, at which point your opponent has to choose how they're going to respond, right? Even if they had a 4-4 four, four Ravager, if you targeted this with Heartless Act, then they have to decide, do I want to just lose those three counters and keep a 1-1 one, one Ravager, which I could, or do I want to sack it and just move the counters, at which point you've still effectively removed the Ravager. So my point is that even in the cases where it might not look like it will be uh, removal in the classic sense, it still actually has some play, even against larger creatures like that. I think this card is actually really interesting because it kills, I would wager, 95% of the creatures you're going to see in play in the average vintage game at the moment. Why don't you start by telling me a, a list of creatures this kills off the top of your head? Monastery Mentor, Lavinia, Snapcaster Mage, um... Dreadhorde Arcanist, Young Pyromancer. It kills Lodestone Golem, Phyrexian Revoker, uh, Foundry Inspector. It kills Gristlebrand. It kills Nivmizit Parun. It kills Inferno Titan. It kills Sun Titan. It kills almost every creature. It kills Deathrite Shaman, Leovold, Tarmogoyf, Dark Confidant. Um, it kills almost every creature that's played in Vintage right now. Just flat out kills it. And then there's some strange exceptions where, like I said, you get to get a little tricky when it comes to Arcbound Ravager and Walking Ballista. But your average walking ballista still dies to this. I mean, it's you're hard-pressed to see a 4-4 four, four or bigger walking ballista. And yes, it gets a little tricky when Ravager's involved, I'll grant you that. Because they could put counters on something in response, and then that's bad. So you, you, it, it would be a punt in those cases. But killing basically every creature that Jeskai or Bug plays, pretty valuable, in my opinion. Oh, and Oath. Every creature that Oath plays and every creature that P.O. plays, too. All right. Doesn't help you against doomsday unfortunately but there's basically nothing that does vis-a-vis creature removal so that's kind of a non-starter I think that's i think that's really where where we need to start to end this conversation yeah. which is how good is creature removal right <laughs> yeah well you make a fair point because a lot of what i said just now could also be applied to the one doom blade <laughs> right and so, how, how card does that how often does that card see play uh basically never at the moment yeah yeah so while and I'm not pitching this strongly, but what I would say is that this card is actually just slightly more useful than Doomblade is in Vintage. And Doomblade's weakness is obviously black creatures, right? It's it's Dark Confidant and Leovold and Deathrite Shaman. It's bad against Bug, basically. Um, and that's not a terrible thing right now because Bug's not strongly, strongly played. So Doomblade would be almost this good in most contexts. Uh, Doomblade can't kill Gristlebrand, for example. But at the same time, the your question belies the point of well what kind of spot removal is seeing play right now and we've already elucidated that in the conversation about sprite dragon which is if it's not swords to plowshares then there's basically no dedicated creature removal uh, swords to plowshares and, and uh, fatal push it's basically no other dedicated creature removal that's seeing play fatal push pushed doomblade out of the world and yeah. aside from that, you've got your Lightning Bolts and Abrupt Decays and Assassin's Trophies, which are broader in their application. There's a reason why those are played. And then your Dismembers of the World, which are played for obvious necessity reasons out of workshops. So the simple truth is, if it's not Abrupt Decay, which has a certain additional value, of course, removing permanents like Thorn of Amethyst and yeah. Oath of Druids, 
than and 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 Narset and Dak, right? Abrupt Decay is obviously much more target rich, and Assassin's Trophy is the same way. Then, really, you're comparing this to Swords to Plowshares and Fatal Push, and agreed. From that standpoint, I, it's pretty hard to unseat those one mana spells. I completely agree. I think there's a second layer or second filtering question, which is how many decks in Contemporary Vintage can cast this card because they either play black or have land like Forbidden Orchard that could cast it. Right. I think right. the challenge. I think the challenge is that black. <laughs> Black went from being the second best color in the format to clearly the worst right now. I mean, I don't, th- I don't think it's <laughs> yeah. even debatable. I think black is clearly the worst color right now. Oh, yeah. And, and I think the data supports that. Yeah. And, and so where does black see play? Well, black is a tertiary color in bug. Uh, but bug is, you know, has a font, fount of excellent removal. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, why would bug, you play? Bug does not need this card. Bug does not need, does not want. Why would it play this over Assassin's Trophy or blah, 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 right? So um, I think that there's two steps to this problem. The first is that focused, narrow, narrowly focused creature removal sees very little play right now. You've you've enumerated where it does and where it doesn't. It's basically Dismember, Fatal Push, and Swords to Plowshares, and that's basically it, mm-hmm. right? Lightning Bolt is not narrowly focused because you can hit it a player or a Planeswalker, so that doesn't count. Mm-hmm. And secondly, where which decks in Vintage have black or could easily play this? And that list then becomes, you know, infinitesimal, becomes incredibly small. And yeah. and the and the decks that do are already in black and green, which get superior removal, um, or they can just jam Fatal Push, which does, like, most of what this does anyway. So, or Dismember, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Or, or God, Snuff Out, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, it's been a hot minute since anybody played Snuff Out, but you're completely right. So I did a quick check, and Fatal Push, which is not the only indicator here, but Fatal Push has only made four top eights year-to-date. Obviously, it was a little bit more present last year when Bug was a little bit better in the metagame, and that's what led to some of its top eights in in January. But in the last two months, one top eight for Fatal Push. Now, granted, it was in the deck that won the challenge, but that wasn't Bug. That was that crazy Urza deck that happened to have one main deck Fatal Push as its removal because the deck wasn't in white. So that's the exception that proves the rule. At this point, all of the recent top eights for the last, I don't know, 12 months or more have been bug, basically, and that has really fallen away. Well, there you go. I think it's pretty clear, given the combination of things we've just said, that this card is just not quite good enough for Vintage right now. Even when you want dedicated creature removal in black, as you've said, you're already, you've already got to look past Fatal Push and Dismember, and you usually have access to Abrupt Decay and Assassin's Trophy. It's just, it's just really hard to find a place for this. Right. This would have been interesting in the year 2001, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that year has passed. So Definitely. All right, let's move on to a fun and interesting one. Riel the Everwise. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but sans pronunciation guide, I'm going to do my best. Riel is a legendary creature human wizard. One blue-red for a 0-3. Riel the Everwise gets plus one plus zero for each instant and sorcery card in your graveyard. Whenever you discard one or more cards for the first time each turn, draw that many cards. Fascinating. What, <laughs> what, an, what an interesting ability. Really, it really is. So yeah. let's let's just start with the casting cost. Clearly, the casting cost is Dak Faden's playable mm-hmm. invented. Naturally. So this actually, I would classify it as another vertical growing threat. Yes. Um, so uh, the re- so it's a little bit like Niv Megas Elemental, right? I mean, so. There is a relationship between playing spells and building your graveyard, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, so 
it's obviously playing spell and making a card grow via query and dryad dynamic is direct. You know, putting cards in your graveyard and then removing them to feed the Nidmegas elemental is indirect, but it's the, essentially the same thing. It's yep. the same concept. Playing spells makes your creature grow. So this is kind of like, it's kind of like a Tarmogoyf version of that, right? Yeah. For, except it's, instead of counting multiple kinds of cards, it just looks at instants and sorceries and allows you to... So basically, this is going to be very quickly, you know, probably off the bat, it's at least a two power. Mm-hmm. Um, very quickly, it will get larger, right? I mean, it could yeah. be four, five, six, seven, eight with by easily by turn four or five, right? Yeah. It could be eight power. Yeah, That's she could hit good. pretty darn hard in, a, in a, even a median situation. Um, the last, the second ability though is really interesting. Oh, and it has three power, three toughness, which means that it's it's not going to survive bolt. It's not going to survive uh, a pyroblast, but it is going to survive a lot of other junk. Yeah, um, creature combat. Fair number of creatures will not get through this. Your snapcasters, your pyromancers, your dreadhorde arcanists, that kind of thing. Right. Now, this second part is where it gets really intriguing, right? Whenever you discard one or more cards for the first time you turn draw that many cards, you map this onto Dak Fade. Mm-hmm. You map this onto a bazaar of Baghdad, Kevin? <laughs> yep. You're telling me that if I activate Bazaar of Baghdad with this in play, and I discard three cards, I'm going to draw that many cards? I'm going to draw three cards? Yeah, precisely. That is insane! <laughs> <laughs> this plus Bazaar is a pretty good value engine. And I'd like to add to that that this says um, each turn. Not your turn, but each turn. Yeah. So you only get it for the first discard each turn, but you can, if you structure it right, have activated abilities on your opponent's turns that cause you to discard, a la Bazaar, Jace Friend's Prodigy, a few more, that will get you card advantage on their turn as well. This card is just so absurd with Dak Fade. I mean, because it's pretty it, good. It, it, you, dr- you essentially draw five cards that turn, including your, your draw for the turn, right? Yeah. I mean, you're drawing, it's really yeah. sick. It's, it's, I'm with it's, you. It's draw four, discard. It's well, it's in net. It's draw four, discard two. Yeah, that is ridiculous. No, no, it's 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 draw five, discard two. For yeah, I, I'm sorry. Draw was, step plus deck plus the, this. That's what I said at the beginning. But I'm saying aside from the draw, just oh, narrowly, okay. just on deck itself. Gotcha, gotcha. It's yeah. absurd. Yeah. Yep. Plus four down two. Yep. Um, I'm with you. If you can put together this plus deck, that's going to be a pretty good value engine. Um, it also obviously synergizes very well with Jace Vryn's Prodigy, especially since you can use Jace on your opponent's turn, so you could be doing something on your turn and doing something on their turn. And it yes. also synergizes with a whole bunch of spells that don't really see much play in Vintage, but it's pretty spicy with something like Thirst for Knowledge or uh, uh, Faithless Looting, <laughs> that whole <laughs> category of spells. About that. Yeah. yeah, which, uh, again, don't cool. see play, but this careful card makes study. them stronger. Yeah, careful Good study. Good God. Yeah. Careful and study bizarre. Now, there, it's, it's worth pointing out that there's not a bizarre deck that's interested in casting a card of this mana cost currently. Currently. Save. You could, like you, could, you could jam one of these into a survival shell. That's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah. It, oh, gosh. This has good synergy with uh, Survival of the Fittest, too. Uh, you're only exactly. ever going to get one card out of that, but it's still it's, an, it's a value engine. you kidding me? That's insanely good. I mean, well, I mean, you, you can only get one per turn, but it, it's still worth doing. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Yeah. There, so there's no that's cost interesting. To it. He, here's the thing, Kevin. Here's the thing I want to yep. just point out. There is usually always a cost, a mana cost involved with drawing cards. Mm-hmm. This does not have a mana cost, which means that it, th- there's potentially some really broken recurring engine you could use to get out of it, right? I mean, yeah. 
even oh. beyond bizarre. Bizarre is uh, just absurd with it. Well, uh, and we haven't bothered to mention something like Wheel of Fortune, right? <laughs> Wheel of Fortune, uh, yeah. a breakthrough. Windfall, yeah. yeah, Windfall Breakthrough, right? Draw four, Memor- discard Memory X. Jar. <laughs> memory Jar does memory fun things jar. with this. Yeah. How, so how would Breakthrough exactly work with this? Let me take a look. Assume well, you had you had this in play and you had no... Uh, well, Breakthrough... I guess it would depend on how many yeah. cards you you have. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Breakthrough, for one mana, with, with nothing put into X, says draw four cards, then choose zero cards in your hand to discard the rest. This would just be draw four cards with Breakthrough. What you would do is you would loot wow. for four first, you would draw four, discard yeah. four, and then she would trigger and you would draw four. Wow. Yeah. That is... That is... That's really good. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty powerful. You're not wrong. Wow. Oh, and uh, don't forget Lion's Eye Diamond, right? This just makes yeah. you cycle your hand and have Lion's Eye Diamond be Black Lotus effectively. Jesus. Which is pretty spicy when you factor in something like Underworld Breach. Wow. I have a hard time imagining that people aren't going to try and build decks around this. I'm looking at the second place deck that from the Vintage Challenge this past weekend and with the Underworld Breach deck. It had three Dak Fadens in it. Mm-hmm. And... By the way, I had a main deck fatal push here to our <laughs> yeah. point about removal. Right, right. I mean, just the, the deck fadens there are valuable enough. And it has it has a bunch of brain freezes. I mean, maybe that's a way... I mean, look, that discard function is very good with Underworld Breach. Maybe we found a kind of a interstitial component to an Underworld Breach deck, right? Where you want to get quick bursts of cards into your graveyard, and then you want to draw a lot after that. Yeah. It's not stoppable. I mean, you can't, that's the other thing about it, is once this lands, unless they remove it, there's nothing you, they can do to stop you from your draw engine from going banana. Uh, yeah, I see your point. I mean, it's still sub, Oops. it's still subject Oops. to lightning bolt in response to a, like a DAC activation. So yeah. there's an element there. It's, you cannot interrupt it when it comes to Lion's Eye Diamond. So that much is definitely for well, certain. But what I wanted to, yeah. And what I want to really get back to though is that this kind of thing has always had a cost. So for example, yeah. just to explain what I mean is imagine if this card said, when you're forced to discard a card for the first time each turn, you may pay one and draw that many cards. Right, right. right. That's what I'm talking about. Or like draw pay agree. one for each pay one for each card you're about to draw. The fact that there's no mana cost interrupting this flow suggests that it really does have the potential to be broken. Yeah. I'm with you. This is so, a very exciting build around card. Now it's a legend, but I don't think that's a problem because if you're dacking, you're not gonna you know, you just need to find the one up. <laughs> that's right? true. The, getting one of these in play inherently Given the nature of the kind of setup we're talking about, inherently is fine with drawing multiples. But the the yeah, and the and the recursive, iterative draw potential is so enormous that the initial investment is likely very much worth it. Like whatever it takes, you know, to 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 assemble the the cards, you know, the discard engine mm-hmm. is probably going to be worth it. And Dak Faden is just the beginning. You know, breakthrough, careful study, faithless looting, um, survival of the fittest. All these cards, you know. Whatever, like symmetrical, you know, draw seven, symmetrical draw, discard. Um, you know, I'm sure there's a card out there that says like, pay a small amount of mana, all players discard some number of cards that you would never think of playing in the first place. But with this, <laughs> it might actually become useful. Seriously, right? Uh, you mean, you mean all players loot or something? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or just say like, you know, like, um, isn't there a, I want to say that there's a Liliana effect where it says each player discards a card, something like that. Yeah. Liliana of the Veil does that. Right. And I'm, what I'm saying is, I bet that there's like an efficient spell out there that it's totally unplayable because it's too <laughs> symmetrical, right? But, but if you could break symmetry, it might become like, 
I don't know. I'm imagining that there's a mind twist out there, but it happens for all players. That's that's really efficient that you would never play because you don't want to discard your hand in the process. Um, yeah. But yeah, with this card, it becomes a possibility if that card exists. Yeah, you're not wrong. There's one that costs... Oh, I can't remember the name of it right now, but there's one that costs three that says everybody discards three cards. And there's one that costs two that says everybody discards two cards too. It might be Exile. But either way, those kind of symmetrical discard effects absolutely exist. I think... And, and there's and this is not exactly functional with Rien, but cards like Winds of Change, right? Yes. That fits yes. into the category that you're talking about. <laughs> oh my god. That's now, exciting. Winds of Change doesn't cause you to discard. You shuffle in, so it doesn't yeah, interact with Rien. But it's the kind ah, of card you're talking about, yeah. Yes, that's. But I'm I'm thinking more of something like that. But it's just just you both discard, yeah. Um, wow, that's exciting. This is exciting yeah. The card, card I was thinking of is called Delirium Skeins. It says everybody discards three cards. How much does it cost? Three. Three. Yeah, it's it's two B. Yeah. Yeah, I'd imagine there was some card that was like that. That's what I was thinking of. Yes, yep. you're completely right. And there's again, there's a there's a two mana one. I think it's Mind Swords. Let me double check. Yeah, Mind Swords. But uh, unfortunately, it makes you exile the cards, strangely. Ah. <laughs> but uh, that one would have been pretty spicy. Boy, this is spicy. This is this is a, a thunker. <laughs> you got to put your brains behind it and really think through how to abuse this card. I'm, I'm really excited. I'm excited to try. Well, and there is... A, there's, it's funny. I was just looking at things comparable. There is a five-mana sorcery, Awaken the Erstwhile, which says everybody discards their hand and they get that many nice. zombies. Nice. <laughs> wow. So, oh, there, sorry. There, there's a three mana version of that that says everybody discards their hand and draws that many. That's Dark ah. Deal, which is also functionally the same as Flux, but it's choose and discard where you would choose and discard everything. Wow. That and yeah. Flux draws you a card too. So you're not wrong. There's actually kind of a lot of variations of that effect. I cannot wait to see the Magic Online Vintage Hive Mind. <laughs> figure out how to work this card. I hope that people tackle this with a plum and the eagerness that I'm that I feel for this card. So, this is exciting. <laughs> this really is. I mean, it's it's kind of unbelievable that this card is the exact same casting cost of Dak Faden. I mean, look, Kevin, let's just be clear. If you get this in play and you have Dak Faden in play, you've won the damn game. <laughs> you you won that you really have won the game. I mean, it's hard to imagine a counter tactic for that. I mean, I suppose like Notion Thief. I mean, my God, it's just Narset. It has to be in play. It's it's hard. You know, there's very limited circumstances in which you can't you can't go draw two, discard two, draw two, and not just win from that position. Right. Well, I agree with you. I'd like to add something to that, which is we haven't really commented on how compact a value and win condition this actually is. We said it earlier. It's Jesus. not hard for this creature to attack, even in the early game for three, four, five. Right. Imagine if you get such an engine going. Imagine if you've got turn one JVP, Good turn God. two Riel. Pass the turn, I'll loot on your turn and draw a card. Next turn, land Dak. Loot again with JVP, loot with Dak. I'm up like five cards at that point. God. And in addition to all that value, Riel is already like a five power or six power creature. Yeah. It I makes mean, you go back to, geez, you really need distributed power to stop this monstrosity from coming at you. Yeah. Now, granted, <laughs> she's, she's not hard to remove in the modern context. But the fact that she generates value, look, it's not that big of a deal to say, if I have turn one JVP and turn two Riel, your opponent's removal is a little spread thin at that point, right? Yes. <laughs> they have some hard choices to make. Yes. And <laughs> if they act proactively, then you get to draw a card in response, basically. So that you're putting your opponent in a pretty rough spot with just that opening. Good lord. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. 
Also, it's worth noting that if for whatever reason your opponent causes you to discard, she triggers that way too. Yeah. There's not a lot of ways that you... playing duress, thoughtsies. Yeah, thoughtsies. Yeah. Um, a draw seven, you know. Yeah, I mean, your opponent's probably not going to play a draw seven of that when you have her in play. Well, that's, They might if they're desperate, but... I mean, that... <laughs> My God, I mean, th- I've long wanted windfall unrestricted, but th- I mean, this is just another nail in the windfall coffin. I mean, that, it becomes a huge right. liability if your opponent has this. Jesus. Right. And also simple stuff, like you said, like Thoughtseize Unmask out of Dredge, for example, becomes a, not much, but a little bit of a liability. Cabal therapy. Yeah, that's right. Therapy. So this is as interesting impacts against Dredge. It's probably really not worth it. Like you'd already have to be have a hate card or two in play to get to this point, but it's it has but some if you already there. had this, you wouldn't side it out. You I would agree. It. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm excited for this card. Interesting. Now, it's it's so novel. It's so <laughs> unique. It's so yeah. interesting. That it's really It makes it really hazardous to predict. <laughs> it, it can go in a number of shells. It can just go in all the red Xerox decks, the ones that are already playing DAC, right? That's a kind of a baseline, but it won't. It won't go in all those decks. It can go, as you said, in, or as I said, in Survival. That's that's fine, but survival in the, the current in its current form is not very strong, and it's not looking to add this card. Right? It doesn't fit in the Hollow Vine decks. So there's a large number of decks it co- in, could go in, but I've got to believe that it won't go in many of those. There could be some new novel builds, some hybridized builds that have more JVPs and decks, and I got to believe that somewhere there's there's a streamer out there who really wants to play this with Bizarre too, and that'll that'll happen in a league somewhere. <laughs> Might even five O. We'll see. My instincts are, though, that this, if it appears, will be still be in, in vanishingly low numbers. I'm thinking less than five. I don't think this is any kind of staple. I do think you have to build around it, really. I think you have to, if you're going to Xerox Shell, you have to be JVP. And that kind of list is certainly viable, but not. it's, it's a break from the norm at the moment, especially in the heavy pyroblast environment. So what I'm getting at is, uh, I think this is playable. Won't be too surprised if it's not in a top eight list. I would expect the number to be five or less. And on, maybe on the low end of that. That is a very reasonable uh, assessment. So what is your conclusion? I'm loath to pick zero here because I do think this card's pretty exciting. And I think a lot of people are going to put some energy into it. So I'm just going to go with one. I'll go three. I think this All card right. is too good not to see play. Could be substantially more than that. Pot's possible. Sure, sure. Pretty exciting. Really is. Yeah. All right, let's move on to another fun one. This is kind of a brain bender. This is the Ozolith. It costs a single generic mana. It's a legendary artifact, you see. Whenever a creature you control leaves the battlefield, important, if it had counters on it, put those counters on the Ozolith. At the beginning of combat on your turn, if the Ozolith has counters on it, you may move all counters from the Ozolith onto target creature. So this basically does what Ravager does automatically. It's uh, modular. Sort kind of like a super modular, yeah. It doesn't have any yeah. other restrictions about the type of counters or the type of creature, yeah. Very similar to modular in practice. It has interesting in- in- interactions with modular, by the way, because you actually get to double up on the counters in the case of a specifically arc-bound Ravager. Meaning if you sack a Ravager and it dies with those counters on it, it triggers the Ozolith and its own modular. <laughs> the counters go in both places. Interesting, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny the way this is worded. I don't like the way this is worded. It says, and I think they did this for the purposes of shorthand, but I think it actually introduces confusion. It says, put those counters on the Ozolith when 
Yeah. I'm not sure that's really what's happening. Yeah, it's it's it should be put that number of counters on the and That number and right? type of counters. Yeah, yeah. Not exactly those. Yeah. You know, because a lot of a lot of players might in- intuitively pick up those counters and move them over when that's not right. functionally what's happening and modularly really um kind of kind of highlights Misleads. that. Misleads. Yeah, yeah, but but I haven't read the FAQ about this card specifically. I just know that modular doubles it up. Anyway, the point is is if you've got a deck that's that's want to have counters on your creatures you can effectively keep them in a way that even modular doesn't let you do right it's pretty famous in workshop matchups where your ravager has to have a target there's so many times throughout the history of workshop matchups where someone has removed the target of a a ravager's modular ability or removed the key mishra's factory that was going to gain all those counters right in response to the trigger so this card kind of gives you a little bit of insurance against that, I suppose. But in that particular capacity, it's not actually any different than just having another creature for a Ravager to target, another artifact creature. Is there another deck that has a creature with counters on it that's really trying to save those counters and get value? (laughs) uh, Gorger. it would function with Gorger Hydra if Gorger Hydra was ever doing anything other than being exiled. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Oh, this triggers on leaves the battlefield. So if they plow your Hydra, you still do get the counters on the Ozolith. Sorry, I I was mistaken for a moment. That's nice. And so that, yeah, you're right. So there's no way to remove the creature, uh, destroy, exile, bounce. They all end up putting the counters on the Ozolith. That's nice. But as we've observed before with our conversation about the Sprite Dragon, there's not that much vertical growth going on in Vintage. Manigorger Hydra and, and Ravager and Ballista are kind of it. Am I Am I missing anything? I don't think so. I don't feel like I'm missing anything. If that's the case, I don't consider this playable in shops for the reasons I just stated. It's not actually any better than just having another creature to target with your Ravager. Yes, there are scenarios where they could remove said creature when they couldn't remove an Ozolith, right? This is better against a a lightning bolt, I suppose. So there's something there. But on average, your workshop player is is just concerned about shatters. And they would rather have another creature in a mirror match or against something like Dredge, right? You'd rather have a creature that could do anything rather than a thing that's just going to sit here and hold your counters. I just don't think there's enough of a d- design space for this card to really see play in Vintage. I, I mean, shops are kind of more marginalized than they've been in, God, like 10 years. Uh, I just don't, yeah. I don't, I mean, there's no doubt that there are applications, but I don't, I don't see this being, I don't think this is, I don't think this is potentially a Vintage playable, but I don't think this is going to see any play in the current metagame next three months. I'm a zero. Yeah, I'm with you. Zero on Ozolith. Okay, we're going to have a conversation about this one. Dranith Magistrate. 1W. It's a creature, human wizard. Noteworthy. It's a 1-3 instead of a 2-2. Your opponents can't cast spells from anywhere other than their hands. (laughs) Indeed. Another in the long storied history of hate bears. This one obviously is... Yeah, this is not exactly a bear, but... Right, I know. That's why I called out the 1-3 which is noteworthy. Not very helpful in the vintage context, but I guess it's it's better than a 2-2 against a Snapcaster Mage and a Revoker. Sure, sure. Not much else. Um, so this does one-fourth of what Grafdinger's Cage does. <laughs> you know, I knew you were going to say something almost exactly like that. <laughs> yeah, as you want to point out the four different you know um, functions of Grafdinger's Cage. I love that you brought that up. So yeah, it doesn't so- stop... It doesn't stop- uh, just to be clear, it does not stop creatures from coming into play from the graveyard. Mm-hmm. It doesn't stop creatures from coming into play from the library. So Oath it, and Dredge still all kind of happen in that sense. 
Right. I mean, there's some limitation. It, it, what this does do is it stops Yawgmoth's will. It stops Underworld Breach. It stops, uh, Bullos's Citadel. Mm-hmm. It does stop a lot of flashback cards like Cabal Therapy or Dread Return. Yeah. Snapcaster Mage by implication, uh, Dreadhorde Arcanist by implication. Yes, very good examples. Does not stop Icarid, does not stop Narcomimba, does not stop Bloodgast. Amalgam. Um, Prized Amalgam, right. Yeah. Doesn't really interact with Dredge, the creatures, really in any way. Just the the spells. Therapy and Dread Return are still applicable. And modern Dredge lists don't necessarily have the Dread Return, right? So you're really kind of a dredge context only hurting uh, therapy here. It doesn't stop. It, it, you might read this and think that maybe it interacts with free spells in some way, but in the broad sense, it doesn't. It doesn't do anything to force of will or vigor or negation. It doesn't do anything to mental misstep unless you're snapping it back. So really all you're trying to hurt here is the graveyard-based shenanigans, as you already listed, and... I think this effect is simply too narrow at fighting those. Anything you would want that fights Dredge, especially at this mana cost, right? You're talking about Rest in Peace, Containment Priest. Those cards are far better. Anything that you would want to fight Yawgmoth's Will, which is underplayed right now, but maybe more appropriately Underworld Breach, anything you would want to fight those would probably just be a more effective effect, like uh, a Tormod's Crypt, for example, that can't just sit and play and get removed, right? And or it would be something that was a little bit more interactive, a la surgical extraction, ravenous trap, that kind of thing. So I think because the format is so good at fighting graveyards that that this effect at being a graveyard hoser is just outperformed already. It's outclassed. The only other thing I can think of, Steve, what are ways in which people exile things and then cast them from the exile zone? I know there are many things like that in Magic. Uh, weird things that see play in edh i'm thinking about possibility storm and knowledge pool and stuff like that yeah no, knowledge pool oh my god yeah that um, was but, a nightmare okay bolas's citadel is That's I, possibly yeah. the best example that you already right. gave right you're casting from your library there this does turn that off but i've got to be honest if you're trying to fight po with a permanent that costs one w then you can do a lot better that is than this. a losing yeah that is that's not where you want to be <laughs> yeah, there exactly. are other ways to fight it besides that right it's, i mean i assume. yeah in the like vintage context, cage would be just much more effective. I completely agree. In the vintage con- concept, sorry, in the vintage context, there is kind of a logjam of hate cards at one W, right? <laughs> it's and it takes a lot to break into that that rarefied air of your stony silence and your rest in peace, etc. And this just, I don't think this does it. I just think the fact that this kit doesn't do much against dredge is nearly fatal, which is so oh, sad yeah. because the scope is so much broader than dread. Ugh, it's frustrating. It's so close. It, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you, and it it's just not efficient enough. It doesn't it doesn't hit dredge and oath, which means it just can't earn its spot in the sideboard. Right. If it All if right. it said if it said your opponent your opponents can't cast spells or from their other from their hands and creatures can't come into play except from <laughs> their hands, then yeah. we would be in business. Yeah. Then you have some. Then you have two. Well, then you'd be covering basically most of the bases of Grafdigger's Cage, right? Right. Yeah, I agree. If this well, was Grafdigger's Cage on a stick... There's still yeah. a lot that Grafdigger's Cage would handle that it doesn't, right? Because, wait, what would be the difference then? Well, you're, you're, this consolidates two parts of Grafdigger's Cage into one, right? Because Grafdigger's yes. Cage elucidates graveyards libraries, and libraries, libraries separately, and this combines yeah. those. Right, good point. Yeah. So this and, it's really it's, two out of four. But yeah, you're still. right. You're right. 
but still your point is well made like this, the fact that this doesn't hurt just the the plain old narc amoeba from happening is i think the death knell for playability and vintage sad yeah we're close we were close yet so far <laughs> all right let's move on to of one mind it's a sorcery for two you this spell costs two less to cast if you control a human creature and a non-human creature the effect is draw two cards. That's too much conditionality. Just too much. Yeah. You need it, two creatures into play to cast this for one blue. Yep. To yep. draw up to Knight's Whisper. No, thank you. It is interesting to note that Monastery Mentor by itself satisfies, satisfies this. The conditions. As, yeah. as does Young Pyromancer, because both of them yeah. are humans that produce non humans. Elementals or monks, yeah. yeah. I think you would need. So, first of all, I wouldn't even play a draw spell that requires you having a creature in play. There's, I think there's a black sorcery that says something like, Dis- sacrifice a creature, draw two cards or something. I forget uh, what it's called, Diabolic Intent. or that, that allows you to Demonic Tutor, right? The, the intent is a Demonic Tutor, yeah. Yeah. But what is it you're getting at? And uh, what I'm getting at is that, like, requiring oh, if, the creature to be in play to con- is oh, conditioned yeah. is just well, out, yeah. outside the realm of, of playability. Now, I, I do want to be specific in saying this doesn't actually require a creature. It requires a creature to be, like, of a vintage mana cost. Yes. <laughs> it, otherwise, yeah. it's just divination. But I, your point is well made. And also, you, you, when you, as soon as you said black card, I immediately went to Painful Truths, right? Which is a black card that's three mana and scales up for how much colors of mana you put into it. Right. I think as I draw like spells card. go, that card's pretty good. Way Obviously, better. it's unplayable in Jeskai. But yeah, I don't. this is just not efficient enough. It has an interesting and novel interaction with Young Pyromancer and Mentor. But the fact that you're only playing one mentor, obviously, and these days, kind of only one pyromancer too. It's it's worth pointing out that you could ratchet up and play a three or four pyromancer deck to try and maximize this. At which point, it becomes a little more reliable. But even then, it's just yeah, it's it's too conditional. All right, the next card we have on our list is actually five cards. And as soon as you hear me say that, you probably know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the tricycle lands, the triomes. And the names for reference are, and I don't know these pronunciations, the names are Idatha, Zagoth, Savai, Ragurin, Raugrin, and Ketria. Now, I probably, been, I probably botched two or more of those. But they was very interesting when these were announced. I was very surprised at the power creep we've got going on here. But for those who don't know, these are wedge-colored three basic land-type lands that tap for a mana of each of their land types, naturally, because they have those types. They come into play tapped, and they have cycling three. So the wedges, for example, are rug, right? Two allied colors, and then their shared enemy. We got all, all five of the cycle of those. These are the first, well, the first of four out of the five wedges, the first time we have a three different basic land type fetchable land. The, the noteworthy exception, the, the, it's, it's not really an exception because it doesn't actually have the land types, but the noteworthy asterisk, I would say, is murmuring bosk which is a one-of of a cycle that is a three-color land that happens to be a forest. So we did have one fetchable three-color land before this, but Murmuring Bask is pretty bad. It's actually a pain land that counts. That happens to be a forest, too. Anyway, our audience probably knows that. But the point is, these are a novel combination of three fetchable land types that produces three mana with a bit of upside in the cycling. It's a high cost of three, but they always come into play tapped. There's no condition in which they don't come into play tapped. And... As such, they have very limited applicability from a tempo standpoint, and I would argue that we're probably talking about, in this context, just the rug land. Uh, Can I just ask you before we get to, you're getting into application. Yeah. Uh, before you get that, is, is 
is this cycle all wedges, all shards, or a combination of wedges, wedges and shards? It's it's only wedges because Ikori okay. is a wedge set. Got it. Yep. Thank you. So we do have Rug and we do have Jeskai in here. So obviously this is pretty remarkable. This is the first time in the history of of magic that these have been printed. Uh, it does it. it <laughs> Brian DeMars is going to have to rethink his battle box now that these are out there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, I do find it interesting, just mathematically, that I was thinking about this, Kevin. There are 10 possible combinations of three mana, three color, you know, the, the five wedges and five shards. and But there yep. are also 10 possible combinations of two colors, given five magic. Yep. Five colors of That's magic. part of the reason is- why five is such an interesting number. <laughs> right. Perfect, perfect number. Well... I don't know. I think magic might be more balanced if there were more if there had originally been more five more than five colors of magic. But that aside, um, <laughs> it's an interesting theory. There's a there's a longer diatribe behind that, but let's just set that aside uh, right, right. without going down that rabbit hole. It strikes me that in vintage we this is a format where you have the most amount of five color mana production, right? Starting with City of Brass to Glimmer Void to Undiscovered Paradise to you know uh, all the recent Forbidden Orchard, all the recent more ver- recent versions of this. What advantage does this have over those? The most obvious advantage is that they count as basic land types, mm-hmm. so that you can fetch them out where you can't fetch out five color lands. Right. That to me is the most obvious advantage. Also, they interact with gush days, yep. uh, thwart, which doesn't see vintage play, but it exists. Right. I mean, so mm-hmm. you can get all that. Um, we Don't have forget talk- that cycling. <laughs> and they have cycling, right? They have cycling, which so, interacts positively with Gushin days. Good point. Um, you know, I I have to say, I think one of the reasons I was more skeptical of the um, oh god, uh, the la- the island that puts spells on top of your deck. What's it called? <laughs> yeah, Mystic Sanctuary. Mystic Sanctuary is because it comes into play tapped. I still have a hell of a time with that card. It's like <laughs> mo- like frust- a frustrating amount of the time. It's it's played tapped, <laughs> like an. Inf- an infuriating yeah. amount of the time it's play tapped <laughs> and i, I yeah. just i go for gush so much that it seems like that like i never get to almost never get to trigger that card that said um there is a card in vintage right now that's a land that comes into play tapped and it sees quite a bit of play mm-hmm. so i don't think that coming into play is entirely dissuasive to these seeing play is where i really want to go with that um, I, I, I think it's i think it's possible that if you were deep enough into a third color that the advantage of having this as a fetchable land outweighs the cost. That's all I wanted to say. I would agree with you, and I would add one additional point to that, and that is because these are... Mystic Sanctuary, in order to have its full value, must come untapped. Meaning, when it's coming right. into play untapped, it's almost entirely a liability, right? You, you would never proactively fetch a Mystic Sanctuary, right? On the first turn, for example. You would just never do that. These lands are the opposite of that. You want to aggressively fetch these if you can, because as soon as you can afford the, that momentary tempo loss, it's all almost all upside after that. Obviously, you reinvigorate the tempo loss if you daze one of these back to your hand, so there's some liability there. But it, it works a little bit differently than Mystic Sanctuary in the sense that these will always be tapped, and you want to, it's, it's the inverse of when you want to find them. You want to find them early and often if you can, whereas Sanctuary, you want to postpone as long as you can. I think the fact that the modern rug decks, for example, are trying to cast Renin 6 aggressively on the second turn, or the first turn, but these don't need to apply there, I think is a mark in favor of the rug version of this. 
That said, there's just so much downward pressure on mana costs in the control and aggro control decks right now. Yeah. That you just, you're going to have to thread a needle with these being useful, even if they're going to really fix your mana on the second turn. Let me give you an example of where I think this might might be more useful than otherwise. Okay. So you're playing Bug. Often Bug Mm -hmm. has one Bayou. Sure. That could be very awkward, right? And yeah. I think it's possible that, you know, you, you need the bayou because you need to get reliable black and green, right? And you, but you could imagine that this could fill that spot. Even though it'll delay you a turn, it gives you a level of consistency that you otherwise wouldn't have. If you could play the BUG version. I don't know if BUG is in this cycle. But it is. I didn't say it earlier, but we've got Bug, Rug, and Jeskai, yeah. Yeah. So that to me, the Bug one, I think is, if you look at our Bug deck that has bayou, that to me is the most obvious upgrade spot. I like it. I can see that. The Not it's rug. interesting because the the bug decks tend uh, the I think are related to that is the bug decks tend to not to be running Mystic Sanctuary today. Mystic yeah. Sanctuary puts a lot of pressure on your mana base, right? Everything else that isn't a sanctuary has to be functional, right? And I think you make a fair point that this, in a lot of contexts, is an upgrade for that otherwise off color land. I mean, think They're about just, all the the mana awkwardness that you have, right? I mean, if you don't have a Deathrite Shaman and you're trying to cast a Leovold or a you know whatever it is, and you sure. need that that mana, that could be very helpful. Sure, completely agree. And especially the, if you just go fetch land go, right? Yeah. I was about to use that exact example. The bug decks can have a lot of turn ones where they don't have a play. Yes, they're a four death right deck and yes, they tend to have other cantrips, but you just don't always have that. I think there's a lot of I was I was in the midst of saying there's a lot of downward pressure on the mana costs for the rug and Jeskai decks right now. These decks are playing days and four or more pyroblasts for a reason right the format's really focused on tempo and efficiency right now which is a mark against the jeskai or rug versions of these lands i think that jeskai has a pretty strong mana base right now and yes there's a lot of room there's a lot of wiggle room for personalization there vis-a-vis how many basic islands and mountains you might run but because jeskai is is so light on white at least in the main it doesn't quite have the same kind of pressure as a rug deck that's trying to cast Renin Six aggressively and keep up Pyroblasts and Dazes and such. Well, I think this is playable as a one-of in rug, but I don't think it's going to be a given, especially when those lists tend to like two Mystic Sanctuaries. I think two Mystic Sanctuaries plus one of the rug land here is it's a bit much. That's It's really asking a lot from your tempo. Now, I do think you might, might be able to make a case for replacing Mox Emerald with one of these in certain builds. Yeah. Depending on the construction of your sideboard and how much you really care about green mana in a rug deck, for example, you might actually prefer this functional land. And I could see I could see making a case for that. I could see trying that. Obviously, Matt Murray has made a case for playing those rug decks sans Black Lotus. So there's, there's not too many sacred cows going on right now in mana-based construction. I think there's going to be a fair bit of experimentation here. I don't think Jeskai wants or needs this land. I think... They have the most secure out of the wedge aggro control deck mana bases, but I wouldn't begrudge someone trying it. And I think your observation about Bayou and Bug is is pretty pretty spot on. At which point we're just in a situation where we've been so many times before where we're really just trying to predict player preferences almost as much as anything else. And that's always a bit of a crapshoot. I don't think these are a staple by any stretch. I could see a future six months from now when these see no play at all and we wouldn't bat an eye. No one would be questioning. And I could see a future six months from now where half of the rug decks have one of these. So half here's of what, the bug decks have one. Here's what really matters, because this isn't like a, <laughs> this isn't something like where 
our listeners need to know how to design a deck. This is a question <laughs> where should we advise them to pick up one of these or not? Obviously, oh. that's it's a it's a fraught question because I mean, for starters, we don't know um, what the starting value of these are going to be. I assume they're going to be heavily played in all kinds of formats. Well, they're going to be super popular in EDH. That much is a given. But EDH doesn't drive prices too strongly on in-print standard cards like this. These are going to... They're not going to be that expensive because they're they're probably too slow for modern. They're, they're going to see a little bit of play in Pioneer, but Pioneer's not a fetch land format. Standard's not a fetch land format. So the intersection of fetch lands and these being playable is actually kind of just EDH. And then in small parts, like as a one-of in some modern and vintage decks, I, I don't think Legacy... I really don't think legacy, but but I could be wrong. So, so the worst case scenario is that these are occasional one ofs, which means if you're talking about price, no, these aren't going to go through the roof from a price standpoint. So, so how much do you think they'll? Well, do you think it's worth picking them up now? Just to I think it's worth. Your- yeah, I think it's worth picking up one each of the blue ones. Let's put it that way, because okay. I I really can't imagine a vintage deck playing more than one of these. I do think there's a good chance that at some point someday you'll play one of these in your deck. Yeah. I can't guarantee it, <laughs> but it's it's a high enough probability that if you can get them, I don't know, what would you say, under $10, it's probably worth it? Yeah, and I think it's not going to be hard to get these for less than 10 bucks, but it's going to be a couple months before that's the case, right? right? The release of this set in paper is a little delayed, and I, oh, and I have no idea about the prices online. That's a whole other world. I don't think any, uh, I just don't think any in-print rare uh, can be more than a couple ticks online. Especially one that's not a four of in standard. I, I really don't know. I, I don't, can't speak to standard. There could be one or two decks in standard that actually max out on these from like a, from a four of perspective. But the standard mana bases are actually pretty good right now. They've got access to shock lands for now, so that seems a little unlikely. Yeah. Anyway, I don't expect these to be super expensive cards. Plus, there's the alternate versions of them. Most of the cards in the set, right? There's the alternate versions that are coming in the collectors boosters and stuff, and so that's going to soak up a whole bunch of the value. But anyway, we're not a finance podcast. Yes, I would recommend to my vintage peers to get one copy each of the blue ones of these as a hedge, and that's about it. All right. So from a prediction standpoint, Steve, what do you want to do? You want to try and predict total play for all five of these at once? You want to uh, make I a guess. comment about the individuals? It's it's up to you. I think it's no, fine to count them ag- all together. Let's do an aggregate, yeah. Yeah, that's fine. I'm I'm definitely I'm comfortable saying non-zero, right? I think there's there's enough of these wedge-colored aggro control decks in vintage right now that somebody's got to succeed with one of these in their list. But I don't think it's going to be very common. I don't think it's it's not going to be nearly as ubiquitous as uh, Mystic Sanctuary has become, not even close. And so I'm thinking less than ten for all these combined. I would be inclined to go a little bit more if Bug was a big part of the metagame because I am compelled by your example of Bayou. I actually think that this these this land plays a little bit more of a functional role in bug. Which which one is the bug one? Well, the name of the bug one is Zagoth. Z a g o t h Zagoth. <clears throat> and if if we were six to twelve months ago when bug was a lot more prominent, I would actually be predicting maybe twice as much of a number here because I really do think that that card plays a strong role in that deck. As it stands, the the, the predominant decks we're talking about here are probably Jeskai, which as I said, I don't think likes this land, and then Rug which is a Renin 6 deck, and so there's some attraction here, but I don't think it's going to become a standard by any stretch. I think it's worth picking up one one of each, so... Yeah. Well, I'm going to go... I'm, I'm, I'm thinking... Again, I'm thinking five or fewer appearances of these lands in totality, 
but yeah, I think it's uh, going to be small. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm inclined to say one, two, three. I'm going to go with two. Like, I don't think they're terrible. I'm going to go the exact. I was going to go the exact same number. <laughs> Do you want to say two as well? Well, I think the challenge here is let, let's say a bug deck wins the vintage challenge with this with one okay. of these. Then you're going to see a lot more in top eights, right? The number, <laughs> so the number is going to be sub ten, but probably more than three. Yeah, yeah. At which point we so are you have now to, in the yeah, area either, of predicting the metagame. Yeah, so I have to basically make a bet: is this going to appear anywhere, or is it not? I'm gonna. I'm counting my. I'm guessing my appearances as being in rug. I'm not assuming okay. any bug's gonna gonna top eight. Interesting. I would say it's it's not out of the realm of possibility by any stretch. Yeah. But uh, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go zero. I'm gonna go zero. Okay. We might be able to make some summations about the direction of the metagame based on the cards we're reviewing here. <laughs> we have not reviewed any cards that strongly push us toward bug, I don't think. Right. Possible exception. Oh, we already talked about the fact that Luris, the the white uh, red, sorry, the Orzhov companion that counts uh, mana cost two or less. We already talked about how that's not good in bug because you would be eschewing Narset and Leovold. I just haven't seen a card yet in our review or that I'm looking at here that really points us toward bug. So I don't predict an increase in bug necessarily based on the release of this set. All right, let's move on to Kinnon, Bonder Prodigy. Again, apologies for the pronunciation. This is a two-mana legend. It's green-blue. Legendary creature, human druid. It's a 2-2. So we got ourselves a gold bear. Whenever you tap a non-land permanent for mana, add one mana of any type that permanent produced. An activated ability of five green blue, colon, look at the top five cards of your library. You may put a non-human creature from among them onto the battlefield. Put the rest in the bottom of your library in random order. This card's all over the place, right? <laughs> yeah, it's got a little bit of that, what is it, the uh, Marari's Wake ability to it. You know, Absolutely. Boost, it is an boost. inverse kind of wake, yep. Yeah, boost your mana capacity. And then it's got, I don't know, this kind of, what's the... uh it's the card Ancient Stirrings, a little bit of an Ancient Stirrings, kind of cheat, yeah. a mini oath, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it puts it right into play, so it's better yeah. than Ancient Stirrings, yeah. Yeah, that's that's Yeah, it's really... kind of akin to Urza, right? Except you just don't shuffle. Yeah, so the, I and think the, the potential... There's a lot to unpack there, because you can cheat on mana cost that way. Right. I don't think you're going to get a lot of value out of a 2-2. A 2-2 mana, a 2-2 creature for 2 mana that just boosts your mana supply. I don't think that's really where the value of this is coming from. Now, obviously, it relates to the second ability, um, but the second ability is really—if this is going to see play—it's because you're going to get some—you're going to get some cheats, right? You're going to—you're going to cheat on mana by putting something broken into play, right? I think so. I think what you're another way to spin what you're saying is that just the first ability to add additional mana from your Moxin and other sources is not worth this kind of card. It's just—it's not even for two mana. That's exactly it's not worth right. just yeah getting a mana flare for yourself because vintage. It, it's been a long time since vintage was a big mana format, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, that said, there is one ostensibly one popular big mana deck in the format in PO, and PO happens to already be the sort of deck that could abuse this ability, right? A Mox Opal deck, but, but a significant portion of its mana base is going yeah. to be increased by Kinnon. Yeah, but I don't think that's enough value. It, look. I'm, You're losing I, a card, yeah. You remember when I played I played um, Lotus Cobra? Lotus oh, yeah. Cobra is better than this in boosting your mana because yep. it turns a single fetch land into Black Lotus. Yep. <laughs> you know, so I, that's not where... in Lotus Cobra is just so often just a dead do-nothing. Sees no play in Vintage today. 
So completely I, agree. That's not where that's not where we are now. Obviously, it has the second mana, the second ability, right? Because which is on the face of it, seven mana is really going to be three and a half, you know? Because if you've got two lands and two moxen, you're basically almost there. Yeah, two lands and two moxen with Kinnon in play would produce six mana. So right, so that's you're, right. you're almost, almost there. there, right? So um, I think that the real value of this is going to hinge on that second ability. So I don't think we're talking PO. I think we're talking about uh, Oath without Oath. <laughs> I don't know. Sneak attack. <laughs> uh, some sort of, I don't know, other kind of way to cheat creatures into play where you can chain something. Yeah. Uh, that That's what we're really talking about. Well, and I let's just, be serious. I mean, we're talking about Gristlebrand here, right? Yeah. What other what else are creature are you going to try and treat into play? No, Gristlebrand's at the top of the list. Yeah. Uh, there was another thing I was thinking of, and I'm, now I've forgotten already. Um, there there oh, are a handful oh, oh. of other splashy oh, one creatures, other card of is Urza. Because Urza plus this would feed itself, would feed each other. So uh, yeah, that's true. That's right. Urza plus Kinnon would create a pretty strong mana engine. Yes, and then you could activate one or the other or both of them. Right, and you can yep. turn in that way. All of your blue artifacts then become blue blue. Oh yeah. Now, granted, that list Sorry, is not, not very non-blue long. Blue artifacts become yeah. blue blue. Yeah. Yeah. And that With list Urza is not very long, right? There's, there's just not many non-mana artifacts that you would be playing, right? You could might have a Grafdigger's <laughs> Cage, but that's not synergistic with Kinnon at all. <laughs> that shuts True. off Kinnon. So that list is not very big. It, ostensibly, it would be the construct that Urza brings with himself would tap for double blue. And then yeah. any other incidental artifact that you happen to have that was there for value... You know what this Which, reminds me of? These creatures a, a, a in play. Tormod's get, crypt here or there, yeah. These cards in play remind me of the totally janky but puzzlingly restricted card enchantments from Urza Saga. Now this is like this is like <laughs> like Mind Over Matter plus um Dream Halls plus you know, it's like this plus Urza just creates some really janky, weird, but potentially fun Johnny interactions. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And I would argue that among the two of them, Urza is the superior card for a number of reasons, <laughs> which is why Urza yes. is seeing top eights in vintage. Right. And, and I doubt that this card actually will. The other thing, too, is that the there's a tension with the design of this card. If you want to abuse both halves of it, you want to have a deck filled with non-land accelerants, which is not that hard in vintage, especially if you push down the Mox Opal route. But then you want to have a deck that creatures. has a high density of creatures. Yeah, those two things because are mutually exclusive. Yeah, you can't unless, do both. It, yeah, and, and there are decks that have a high density of creatures in Vintage, but those decks tend to be low mana count decks, right? You've got your, obviously, your Hollowvine deck is an extreme example, but your Eldrazi, your White Eldrazi, right? Those are decks that are trying to have low counts of mana, or low counts of mana sources with high impacts, you know, your Ancient Tombs, your Workshops, that kind of thing, your Eldrazi Temples. Those kind of decks don't want to invest in something to increase their mana count this way. So there's a tension from a deck design standpoint that Vintage does, is not the sweet spot for this card. Even though it is inherently synergistic with Moxen, which are omnipresent, it's still not that good to spend a card just to make the two Moxen you've got in play tap for two more. You could have just had a Grim Monolith and been faster out of the gate and probably better off. Yeah, this card's neat, and I like what it does for other formats, but not for Vintage. I'm going to go with zero. Me too. All right. We are still mired in a Ikoria Lair of Behemoth set review, but we can't avoid the elephant in the room from a set release standpoint, which is the concurrent release of Commander 2020. So we have a little bonus. bit of bonus content here vis-a-vis a couple of cards from the Commander set that we've been asked to review by our audience. So let me introduce you to two Commander cards. The first is Ethereal Forager. This is a creature for UU. 
It's an elemental whale, and it's a 3-3. It has delve and flying. And Scott, whenever Ethereal Forager attacks... Well for us, so... I know, I know. Whenever Ethereal Forager attacks, you may return an instant or sorcery card exiled with Ethereal Forager to its owner's hand. <sighs> Boy, this is interesting. So it exiles four cards. It's a 3-3 three, three flyer. 3-3 yes, three, three flyer. It's a, it's for, a phantom monster. For basically blue-blue. Um, it's not, not terrible. Um, so it, it dealt four cards, right? Mm-hmm. And the better the four cards that you remove, which is the opposite of what you normally do with Delve, right? Right, the, right. The, <laughs> the the better effect you get each attack. And I think it's probably a good a good number because like let's say one is a restricted card, one is a preordain, I don't know, Kevin, one is a pyroblast. That's and you got a fetch land in there. <laughs> and a fetch land, right? Yeah. I mean ostensibly so, you can't assume you're gonna delve four instants and sorceries. Obviously that will happen. Yes. But if you're being aggressive with this card, it's gonna be a mixture of those things and fetch lands. Right. So um yeah, I would say the average. I would say the the, the problem. Let me say the median count of spells you're going to put under this is probably two to three. Yeah, I think that's right. So here, but I think that's enough to get value out of it. If you can, oh, if yeah. you can do preordain and a restricted card. That's pl- in a pyroblast. That means you can hit a planeswalker your opponent's played. You can, you know, uh, or a blue creature. Right. Mm-hmm. You get a draw out of it, and you get a good a good boost. Now, I think what's <laughs> what's tickling me about this card, Kevin, <laughs> is I th- is this the first card that we've seen. A cre- where you can get something from exile that's not a uh, god i don't even know is there anything that we have that's vintage playable that that can retrieve from exile because uh, it, it strikes I don't me think so because it strikes me that this is this could create that fun kind of chain where you know um you frankly time walk what exactly yeah that's what i was going to get at is, is so there's we'll set aside that but <laughs> that's where i ultimately wanted to go but i was going to start with you know the good old fun of um you know, I play uh, a delve spell, right? And then I delve another spell and exile the first delve spell. <laughs> and, then, you know, oh, yeah. and then you play this exiling a delve spell. Then you get to replay the restricted delve spell. That seems interesting. Um, Definitely. So, so this, th- this, this is a way this of This has evading. that in common with Underworld Breach in that it lets yes. you recur restricted cards. Exactly. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah. And, if you could and, I, rec- and I think that's a big value. Agreed. It really is. And this, I, and this is competing with Dreadhorde Arcanist pretty directly from a value prop standpoint. And there's one other thing to note. If you, for some reason, could get a way to bounce this, then you could get it. It could become a recurring effect, much like people will jace, you know, a Snapcaster Mage to be able to replay mm-hmm. something else. But it's a little more nefarious than that because, <laughs> you, yeah, yeah. You could I'm, keep- I'm with you. You're right. You could you could recast a single Ethereal Forger for extra value once the first one. For right. the first version of this one that you played had dried up the things it had exiled. Exactly. Because it, it doesn't, it's not, I want to be really clear about this. It's not Snapcaster. It doesn't exile yeah. the card. What It goes back to your hand. Yeah. And then when you cast hand. it, it goes back to your graveyard. Graveyard, which means you could do it all over again. Exactly. Yeah. That's, it's a cycle that's of what life. I wanted to get at. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So you could, that's a good point is that so, it's, it's not just you're getting one more shot at that card. You're getting a, a cycle of more shots at that card. So the ultimate expression is you already alluded to is time walk. So you time walk. You play mm-hmm. this card. You get a time walk. You get you get a time. You take your time walk turn. You time mm-hmm. walk. You you then get to replay time walk again with like a snapcaster mage. So yeah. you can get a lot of time walks going. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, yeah. With this, yeah. So this is situ- in that sense, it's situationally better than snapcaster mage because it can get you. This can this can literally draw you four cards. Yes, and also it's whenever it attacks, so it yeah. has the advantage of. Of um, 
Dreadhorde Arcanist, where it doesn't have to actually deal inflict damage, doesn't have to survive the combat step. Mm-hmm. It's immediate, and, it, and yep. it retur- it's a return. So you also don't even have to put the spell on the stack immediately. Which so is, it's good with counter spells in a way that Dreadhorde Arcanist exactly, is not. Exactly. Exactly. Oh yeah. So you can, this can put, get you back a force of will. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. That's that's what I really want to get at. So that you can put you can put it in your hand and you can play it when you want to instead of being compelled to play it at that moment with Dreadhorde Arcanist. So it, it protects itself slowly, but eventually protects itself in a way that Dreadhorde Arcanist really can't. But you don't have that, to protect. You don't have to protect it once you get an attack because you can get the best no, card. And, Get it back to that's what hand. I'm getting at, though, is yeah. once you've attacked once, you have your choice. You, If you feel like you're going to go long in the game and want to play the control role, you can just put that Pyroblaster, that Force of Will, back in your hand, and now you're you're set up for the control role in a way that Dreadhorde Arcanist isn't especially good at. Yes, Arcanist can set up the control role in other ways by flashing back uh, cantrips and such, but this literally does that in a way that Arcanist never will, and it also does it with a fuller set of cards than Snapcaster Mage can. Like, you, you can't realistically snap back a Force of Will. And also, no. a Snapcaster Mage is only ever going to get you one card. It, right, and with Dreadhorde Arcanist, you, you have to play the spell right then and there, where this actually goes in your hand, which yeah. gives you much more flexibility. You know, mm-hmm. you might also, put it in your hand, but you might, for example, Kevin, I could theoretically see in a really tight situation where you put the card in your hand, but you really just didn't want that card, you just wanted a card so you could dack. And then yeah. you put it in your graveyard, and you can flash back the card you put in your graveyard. So. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And that dovetails with all the conversations we already had about looting and Riel and the Dak and JVP all and LHS. Yeah, yeah. I have one I, other I thing this... I want, want to say about go, this before we get yeah, to predictions, ahead. but uh, I, I didn't want to continue to interrupt you and give you a chance to say anything else you had in your mind. Well, I just want to make sure to cover the topic that this thing is pretty weak to removal, right? Dies to Bolt and Pyroblast, in addition to basically everything else. It's a 3-3, so it tussles pretty well with some of the smaller creatures like snaps and dreadhorde arcanists right and it has flying so it serves some of the purposes we've talked about in terms of pressuring planeswalkers over the top of basically all the other uh, xerox creatures within reason that get played so that's what i wanted to add in it should be plain to our audience at this point but this has some decent stats but it's blue and it's three three so it's not great stats kevin i wanted to point out though that tassiger has seen quite a bit of play in brian kelly type decks brian kelly's used in vintage now, obviously, Tassiger is kind of a, it's analogous in some ways. It's, you know, you've, it's got this decent sized body, but it has this recurring capacity that's pretty mana sure. intensive. I want to, I want to know how you think this card compares to Tassiger, which has, it's established its bona fide. Yeah. Or its bona fides. I, 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 I think that is a great comparison. And I agree with you on a lot of fronts. Tassiger is a very efficient creature that can play a number of different roles. It can be a finisher and like a control mirror. One of the things I always loved about Tassiger was just how easy it was to cast, right? Tassiger's mana cost is just... Black. Five. It's just a single mana and five, so it's a little bit cheaper than a Gurmag Angler, which is great. It it technically has the same converted mana cost as this whale. <laughs> what is it? It is an elemental whale. But you can obviously do it cheaper and faster in a lot of different contexts, and it's easier to protect. And the thing that... I, <laughs> The converse is is that Tassiger's card quality, it will generate card advantage, but its card quality is frequently quite low. You're, a lot of activations of Tassiger are going to get you a mana source, right? Since your opponent gets to choose. This Ethereal Forager, this Elemental Whale, has exactly the opposite effect. You get to tailor what you're getting back with this thing, and you can guarantee, assuming that it lives, that you're going to get Ancestral Recall or Time Walk back if you so choose. So 
it's again situationally better and situationally worse i Agreed. like tassiger for the way that it mucks up the ground when eldrazi are popular right because it survives four, four, a, a thought not seer but it doesn't have any evasion so it's give and take with both of these cards and i could definitely see a situation now tasker hasn't really made top eights lately because as we said black is so bad but this card casting blue blue which we haven't really addressed but the mana cost is a lot more friendly to situations where you're trying to protect your mana base from wastelands and other things like exactly. that exactly that's what i was going to say though there's a flip side to it which is that yeah the Tassiger activation is so much more expensive than the activation oh, yeah. for this. So that, it, yeah, it's, a, it's it's yeah, it's a much worse value prop activating Tassiger than this card, I think. But I re- here's the question I really wanted to ask you the most. So I I wanted to draw a juxtaposition between Tassiger and this card. But here's the question I'm most interested in your answer on: Would mm. this card be better or worse if the colorless mana cost was five instead of four? And by extension, <laughs> would it be? And by extension, would it be better if it had? a more expensive colorless mana cost yeah that's a really interesting framing and i would i like this card the way it is i, I would prefer it to have a sl- a smaller delve amount and that's because i don't think the, because the incremental value of delving a fifth card is it's pretty low value right that card that fifth card in many many contexts is just going to be another fetch land or the worst instant sorcery in your graveyard is going to be that preordain. That's but, it's fine, but it's going to be the it's going to be the fourth one you put into your hand on that list. But right? as you pointed out, being able to look, Kevin, if you have double force of if you have a force of will and misdirection in your graveyard, or force of will and force of negation, yeah. I mean, being able to put each one of those each turn that you attack gets you stronger and stronger. Yeah, you know? and, and so there is a case to be made that if it was one more mana, and you could put more counter spells in your hand. That might be better than than this, but I, I think I agree with you. I think that four is the sweet spot. I really do. I think that four is actually better than three, but I think four is also better than five because <laughs> seriously, yeah. because three is too small to give you the real diversity of spells that you might want to select among. As the game unfolds, you can ch- you can change in different directions, right? Yeah. But I think four gives you the real sweet spot. Yeah, I think that's a fair analysis. Um, I think three and four is pretty close, but. Uh, we don't need to nitpick that. Uh, but to your point, it, if you could, you know what? You, you know what the ideal mana cost for this spell would be, which is impossible. It would be blue, blue X, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the ideal mana cost would be a blue, blue X, and then it came into play as like an XX, right? XX, you said that, XX creature? Yeah. Oh, that God, would be the be ideal so awesome. version of this card. That would be so awesome because then you could scale it if it still had delve. I mean, then you could scale it up in the late game and put five, six, seven cards under this if you so chose. Yeah. But we're not in that world. But, but to your point, though, is yeah, there's a universe where this thing has a higher mana cost and it's actually a superior card. Right. And there are some games where you would like that. But I would, I would turn that back on you and say, in a lot of those games, if you got the first two to four cards out of this thing, that was enough to win the game, right? Fair enough. Like, you get four turns into attacking with this thing, and you've returned four quality cards to your hand, that that game's over. Like, you've won that game already. The fifth and sixth card, hypothetically, aren't going to be the difference maker. You probably, for one, you may have found another Ethereal Forager in all that time, <laughs> because you're probably playing with more than one of these. So... I, I see your point from a theory standpoint. I think in practice, you're right. Four is about the sweet spot for how good this card should be, I think. Right. And, and you really don't need to attack four turns. I mean, four is how many you need to get the full value, I think. So, I, I mean, think you've got a lot of value. Yeah. It okay. can get bigger, but it doesn't need to, yeah. All right, let's move on to the last card. Well, hold on. we got to predict this one. Oh, yes, of course. I mean, so we. I, I think we both agree that this card's vintage playable. 
and it has so. synergy with yeah it has synergy with the with the way decks are built right now and the way games play out in a lot of ways the, these, i think it has a lot of weaknesses but these sets really introduce i think lots of competitive options for xerox decks yeah um you know it's it really cool it is really cool you know so will you mix it up with dreadhorde arcanist you know this and arcanist you know and you know it's like already xerox is like running all singleton you know threats it's <laughs> yeah. like pyromancer well, mon- mentor right there's already more creatures at the two mana slot than you can afford to play so yeah that's about personal style and how you approach different matchups dreadhorde arcanist obviously has the advantage that you can just land an arcanist with a mox on the first turn yes. and it'll deploy its value over the course of the game and, theoretically and it can't be pyroblasted it's pretty yeah. resilient it's hard it's, really hard to yeah. remove on the flip side, though, I've seen plenty of games where a person plays an early Arcanist, and after that first preordain, they don't actually find do anything. anything else to do, right? Yeah. You're attacking with a graveyard that's full of Pyroblast, Force of Will, and Force of Negation, Agreed. and the Arcanist doesn't do anything for In you. In some sense, the more controlling you are, the better this Forager becomes. Yeah, that's a really good analogy, I think. Arcanist is there to be a little bit more resilient, and it gets you reliable value, but not not right. guaranteed value you're, the way you're this playing on the Forager stack, is. And you're playing, you know, you're playing... A- a celerity game rather than a pure control game. Yeah, you know, th- I could see I think- someone playing like a pair of mana drains in a de- in a del- in a control deck with this. You know, you might <laughs> oh have- yeah, yeah. And the fact that it's blue blue promotes other blue blue spells, right? You're incentivized to have yeah. maybe two basic islands in that list. I think yeah. this is playable as well. I do. I mean, I just think that I think look, delve is an absurdly good effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, there's evidence is that. Basically, I mean, what Delve spell hasn't seen play is a more important question than which Delves have seen play, you know? <laughs> I, mean, the, I know, you're The right. number of Delve spells that haven't seen play is smaller than the Delve spells that have seen play, I assume. I assume. When you when you kick, factor in the fact, like, Grimag Aglers saw play in Dredge, uh, uh, there's another Dredge card, what Hogak sees play in Dredge. Yep, um, yep. Dig Through Time, Treasure Cruise, um, you know, I'm sure I'm the, sure there's others, so... We there are 28 Tassiger. cards in Magic that have... Uh, sorry, a couple of them have Delver in their name. So there's like 25 cards, I think, that have Delve. And so there's more than you think. There's some c- kind of garbagey limited cards, right, that haven't seen play in Eternal formats. But there's a threshold for decent cards, and almost all of those have seen play, to your point. Yeah. So I, I think this is probably better. It just seems like it's on par with, you know, I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know. It seems like it's on par with Tassiger. I would agree. Uh, I think it's a problem. It might be a little. It might be situationally best. Situationally, situationally better. Situationally worse. I think it's yeah. It's real tough because Tassiger is going to live through all the bolts right now, and that's a big mark in Tassiger's favor. And Pyroblast. But but this thing has a higher ceiling than Tassiger ever will, for the reasons we've stated. And Tassiger gets better in an environment with Eldrazi, which is not the world we really live in right now. So that's a mark in favor of. We this live in a blue ethereal world. Ethereal Forge yeah. yeah. Also, this card can be played outside of Xerox. It can be played in Bug. It can be played in Grixis. So there's mm-hmm. a, almost a broader scope of application. Oh, you know, that's a really good point. Another mark in favor of Bug, actually, in the sense that, is this better than Bob in Bug? <laughs> I it don't might think be. Bob, Bob plays. See, I mean, <laughs> what, yeah, what's but, the best card of, creature of all time? He's almost no play right now. Yeah. But I, I, but you're not wrong. But I, as a thought exercise, though, it could be. It really could be. You'd want to restructure your bug decks to, be, to play preordains, which is not unheard of, of course. But not all of them do. But if you structure your bug deck to play preordain, then you get some extra benefit in certain matchups. Like you get to return a, f- a force of vigor to your hand against shops. That's big game. 
Good point. Not granted, shops can kill this with a, a big ballista, but it takes a little bit of work. Yeah, it takes a lot of work. Yeah, and if you're properly disrupting them vis-a-vis workshops, it's it's not a sure thing. Oh, and obviously collector roof, right? It's not a sure thing that shops is ever going to get a chance to shoot one of these down. Yeah, at which point, holy moly, that's a lot of value. Sure you get to double up on Force of Vigor against them. And then the second card you bring back is a cantrip that finds your third Force of Vigor, right? Yeah, wow. this 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 could be really nice for a bug in certain matchups. And let's not forget the sideboard applications against things like, say, Dredge, right? If you're the sort of deck that's bringing in some Mind Break Traps and Surgical Extractions against Dredge, and you get to buy two of those back in a post-sideboard game, like on turn three or four, yeah, that's pretty nice. It is. So this this plays well with a lot of the way Bug is built because Bug frequently has those spell-based post-sideboard effects that are haymakers. And you get to buy back things in the control matchups like Veil of Summer and Flusterstorms and it's the nice Bustacase. It's just nice to have a flyer, too. Yeah, yeah, agree. Yeah, I like the way you put that. I wouldn't have really thought of that unless you'd said it, that this might be a better improvement for Bug than it is for Jeskai or Rug, which I think is an important recognition. So when I said earlier that we weren't really seeing cards that really promoted bug, I might have spoken too soon. <laughs> That's fun. Well, at any rate, so I feel like we're both going to go non-zero here, right? Yeah, I don't know where to where to peg it, though. <sighs> I'm with you because I know that this doesn't inse- unseat Dreadhorde Arcanist for a lot of people, right? Yeah. It just can't. And that, that puts a glass ceiling on the utility of the thing. It's fun in rug, it's fun in bug, and I'd be inclined to try it in a bug or you know, like a four-color bug-related build, right? Sounds like a lot of fun in those kind of builds. Those builds frequently have one or two snaps, some amount of Dreadhorde Arcanists. They, they tend not to be fully loaded Dreadhorde Arcanist decks even. So I would see this as a one or a two of in those three-slash-four-color Renin-6 decks, maybe. Maybe that's where we're going to see this. I bet we'll see it. It's real fun. It's got a pretty high ceiling. All right, I'll go first since I think you've gone first on every, almost every one of these. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. I think that we're looking at a very small number. I think this card is basically like a one of where it fits. I don't. I, I can't imagine decks playing more than one of this. <laughs> it's it's not like <laughs> I'm not gonna play four of this card. <laughs> yeah, you can't load up on it. You could play two, maybe two. You, re- you really could, but it's, yeah, this is not. This is not more than a one of. I I would be so shocked to see if anyone plays more than one. <laughs> I, I think this could slot into a wide range of decks. You know, it can slot into a control deck, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, I think we're, I think this is a fairly low number. I'm going to say three. Yeah. I mean, I think that's reasonable. I think it's, I agree with everything you said. Um, I'm just not sure. I, I can't, I don't feel like I can take the over on three. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm going to take the under on three. I'm going to say two. Fair. Okay. We'll find out. Yep. All right, let's finish up our this this dual set review with our last card from Commander, and that is Manascape Refractor. Manascape Refractor is a three-mana artifact. It enters the battlefield tapped, unfortunately. Manascape Refractor has all activated abilities of all lands <laughs> on the battlefield. You may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to pay the activated costs of Manascape Refractor's abilities. Oh, God. Vroman would love this card. <laughs> yeah yeah because it's bizarre and, and workshop yeah now, it, yeah well i mean the golo stacks deck is kind of custom built for this effect because it sure just gets so many different lands with inventors there sure. and bazooka bog and blah 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 and blah da, 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 you name it yep um worth noting that you don't get the static or triggered abilities of bazooka bog or inventors fair you just get the activated abilities what about tabernacle uh tabernacle has no activated abilities, right so you don't get that 
So you get I mean, you get works. wasteland and strip. You yeah, get all the mana you abilities. Get three mana wasteland. Yeah, right? you get um, Caracas, for example. Yeah, you do get Inventor's Fair. You get Mishra's Factory. It's nice. And all the other wasteland variants and all the other creature land variants, if you want them. So there's definitely a lot to be had here. It's worth noting that it's also all of your opponent's lands. Nice. So you can which, tap for mana colors and so on. Yeah. So if if you're in a, a, a tough spot and you need mana for whatever reason, you you might have access to it. But honestly, if you resolved one of these, you probably don't. I think that the coming into play tapped is near fatal. But here's here's a more serious, well, not more serious, but more intricate question. Mm. Is this card better than Crucible of Worlds? And I think the answer is no. Mm. A very relevant question. Yes, it's the same mana cost. Situationally, yeah, situationally it can be better, though, because Crucible of Worlds doesn't get you a second workshop, for example. Uh, it can. So it can. You can wasteland well, no, your it, workshop, replay your workshop, and then you can have a second yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, I know. But that's, I mean, yes, such a thing is possible. But realistically, this you could keep a one-land hand and cast a Ballista for three on turn two with this in a way that Crucible wouldn't enable, necessarily. Fair. So it's situationally a little bit better than Crucible sometimes. Also, from a tempo standpoint, situ- uh, Crucible doesn't allow you to play two lands in a turn. So you could play Workshop in this, and on your second turn, double Wasteland your opponent. Yeah. So this this kind of lets you cheat a land drop into play, but it comes into play tapped, as you've observed, and that's a big deal, right? It's But you can buy back tempo by first tapping this as a Workshop, and then tapping it as a Wasteland, which is nice, right? Because there are certain draws that shops decks have that really would want to function that way. They really would want to explode mana-wise and then buy back a bunch of tempo on your opponent. That's There's a lot of value there. This is also a second academy. Yes. If your opponent's playing is, Dredge, it's a bizarre Baghdad. Yep. And if you're playing, as you said, if you're playing one of those romance-style four-workshop, four-bizarre decks... This would have been this so... Just, this just slices and dices, right? Yeah, it would have been so much more interesting back in the days when, like... People were playing with like Barbarian Ring, blah blah blah, you know. But of course, the problem is once you activate it, it's discarded. So, oh yeah, no, it has re- interaction sacrifice. with Welder in that capacity, but Welder's not really played right now. Um, but to your point, the Golos decks right now can get most of those benefits, right? The Golos decks can get two Caracas into play, which is pretty rough for Oath. The Golos decks can get well, basically anything they want. They can go get double Workshop, uh, double Mistress Factory when they want to go on the offensive. Basically, whatever you want. They can go get effectively double Inventor's Fair for maximum flexibility. I don't think this is going to see play. I think that the opening phrase is fatal, and I yeah. think that the comparison to Crucible is unfavorable. Yeah, I can see why you would say that. I initially thought that this card might be best in a stacks deck, where you would like it to be one thing in the short term and then another thing in the longer term. But well, it to your point, be. It doesn't have to be. It's all those things all the time. Well, and sorry, the, what I was thinking when I said that was it's mana initially to deploy lock pieces, and then it's wasteland afterward to, to buy back the tempo. I think that element of buying back tempo is big, but you can't ignore the fact that you gave That's up a, a whole point. bunch of tempo just to play it. Right. You, it you costs sunk a three mana into it. Yeah. A, a three mana. mana that could have been casting a sphere or a stack or a wire or a golos or whatever. So you can't, it's real hard to ignore the, the tempo loss in the example I'm trying to set up where you're buying back time. This card would be amazing if in some way you could get, you could treat, cheat it out, right? If you could incidentally get this into play and then have it be a wasteland in the turn after or turn, two turns later. But obviously that's, that's an environment that's not really feasible. I think your comparison to Crucible is very strong and it shores up most of the weaknesses of the card. And it, it, it adds most of the utility and then some, 
and shores up a lot of the weaknesses in terms of coming into play tapped because crucible is effectively a mana source that comes in untapped and it can't always be but it frequently will be and that's huge and also the examples what i gave about buying back tempo with wasteland that's a one-time effect barring the goblin welder but crucible is a recurring threat right and in the ways that you want it to be a threat it is a recurring threat that has to be addressed and that's humongous as well like I think a Crucible is way better in the shop mirror than this card ever will be, for example, as well as against Dredge. Well, I'm I'm on record. I'm predicting zero. Yeah, I do think there's there is an application here. I wouldn't be surprised to see people trying this as a one of in certain Golos or stack style builds. It can short. Uh, we should point out too that it can shortcut some elements of the the depths combo, right? Because this has the activated ability of Thespian Stage which means you could get the whole combo into play in one turn because half of it doesn't cost you a land drop. So there's an application there in a Dark Depths-based deck, which in Modern Vintage, there is a Workshop Bizarre Depths deck, right, that could speed up its combo by using this card. But unfortunately, that deck's card advantage utility pretty much entirely revolves around Life from the Loam and Bizarre, and it's real hard to get this back that way. It's not impossible. You can do it with things like Buried Ruin and other things, but that undoes all of the tempo. But you could have a maybe a ZS Bonds kind of shell that didn't rely on Fast Bond, but could actually deploy the Dark Depths combo faster than, well, maybe as fast as a Fast Bond shell could. But those decks are probably always going to be better just with Fast Bond <laughs> and Crucible anyway. Well, you've exhausted every, every nook and cranny, <laughs> I think. I think we can move on. Yeah, well, you're right. I'm going to go with zero on this, but I think it, it it's there are some corner cases where it's actually a good card, but I don't think those cases are good enough in the long run, so I'm with you. And uh, that brings us to the end of our Ikoria Lair of Behemoths, nay, Commander 2020 set review. So thank you for listening to episode 99 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed our show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes so that other Magic players can find our podcast. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. And Kevin, our next episode will be our 100th anniversary special. It's pretty exciting, Steve. I've been brainstorming about maybe some special things we can do, so we might reach out to our audience a little bit. We might talk amongst ourselves here and come up with something fun, but we'll have to do something between now and our next set review to celebrate. Thank you all for listening for so many years to our our show. Definitely. Ha, 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 ha.